I've reversed the polarity of the neutron flow, so the TARDIS should be free of the force field now. Live from the club spat, this is Doctor Who Podshock. This is Doctor Who Podshock episode 57 for the week of October 30th, 2006. My name is Ken Deep, alongside uh, Mr. Lewis Trapani. Hello. And Mr. James Norton across the pond. Hello. And I'll leave it in Lewis's hand to introduce our special guest. Joining us with, um, in this episode, we have Jerry Reynolds, the sci-fi radio guy, and he's also the host of American Who, as um, I'm sure many of our listeners have heard his show. Um, he has done uh, countless um, shows, interesting shows on Doctor Who, and uh, great guests and interviews, and we're delighted to have him on our show. Have I really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I have. Well, thank you very much for the compliment. It's, it's an honor to be here. I, I know you guys that wanted to ring me up for the... Um, for for the show after um, yeah that uh, roundtable discussion show that we had after after Billy had left uh, and, and God knows uh, I th- I think stock and Kleenex went up I think uh, the week that episode was aired <laughs> wasn't it but but I will say, I, I will say this though for uh, what a hell of a finish that was if I can just take a couple of seconds to say that I I knew that Billy was going to leave I knew something like that was going to happen but the way it was done. The way that um, the, the way that every element of, shall I say, pathos was was used. I I, I guess that's yeah. That that's that's my limit today. One one expensive word, pathos. Um, the way it was used, it, it was just a brilliant finish. But a lot of people had some problems with Catherine Tate popping up at the end. There, I believe there was a reason for that, because we have to be reminded that even though this might have been a show about Rose, this really was, after all, a show about the Doctor. That's why the show is called Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. We have to remember that and remind out. Have to remind the people that make the show that too. Sometimes <laughs> you're thinking love and monsters right now. I knew this. <laughs> I'm not even going there. You know, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting how um I uh, I was thinking of like getting back a bunch of friends together just so we could end up seeing all these new Doctor Who stories from across the pond before sci-fi got to them. And then I saw love and love and monsters. And I just, I just dropped everything like a hot potato. <laughs> I, I got rid of all my patio blocks. I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Don't blame you, mate. <laughs> okay, we're, we're, we're going to jump right into the news. Thank you. Uh, our first story is uh, we had previously reported on the Children in Need concert. As you know, Murray Gold was... Uh, going to be there, well, is going to be there, and uh, the tickets went on sale, and it sold out within two hours. It's Sunday, November 19th, that's when it was that's, uh, that's right. At the Millennium Center in Cardiff. So um, if you were planning on or hoping to go, I guess you're going to have to find tickets underground, because <laughs> they sold out in record time. So um, that tells you, I mean, we were just uh, having a brief discussion uh, earlier about the... Um, 
about the popularity of science fiction and Doctor Who, and if that's any indication right there, that's that's incredible that they sold out in, in a matter of a couple hours. Well, it's all for a very good cause, Children in Need, and uh, I think Pudsey has been around, I think, since uh, since before um, oh, since before the days of the Blitz. I, I think it's probably as long as the BBC has been around. Really, and it's always it's always been a great noble charity, and just as much as uh, Blue Peter has been associated with Doctor Who after all these years. Children in Need has kind of had that friendship with the Doctor as far back as the uh, 20th anniversary special in 1983, and and that 3D, um, well, I, I can't say what I feel about that 3 3D, uh, 3D uh, thing back in 1993. But oh, 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 you're talking about um, dimensions yeah, um, in time. Yeah. Actually, I was going to call it an abomination, but thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> um, but, but, but but suffice to say that you know uh, Doctor Who and children's charities uh, have have always been uh, have always been a good partnership. And, and, and most importantly, just as much as we like to think it's, uh, it's all about us, Doctor Who, first and foremost, it's always been for the children. You know, we were the ones hiding behind the sofa first. And, and, now, and now it's my nephew's turn. He's, he's 10 years old. My niece is uh, seven. And, and they're big fans of the show, tremendous fans of the show. And, and uh, even, though they've, even though they've seen the episodes already, they're still looking at it on Sci-Fi before Friday nights at 8 o'clock. Go ahead. I'm sorry. For those Star Wars fans out there, I always consider Dimensions in Time is our Star Wars holiday special for the Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you're right about that because of the simple fact that you can't tell John Pertwee and Beatrice Arthur apart <laughs> in certain scenes. You know what? I didn't think of that. <laughs> good point. Yeah, yeah very, very good point indeed. I, so, uh, Girls, I think she's known in the UK. She, she was known for a sitcom here as Maud. Um, and, uh, yeah, she's about the same height and the same hair and the same nose as Pertwee. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, one thing never to tell your girlfriend, you know, if, if you really want to be very, very amorous and have a return, uh, though, those amorous affections, never tell her in this light, you look just exactly like Beatrice author, just as much as you can't say in the UK in this light, you look just exactly like John Pertwee. Never, never, ever, <laughs> ever, never, never. <laughs> well, joining Murray Gold at this concert will be Russell T. Davies, and David Tennant has been confirmed as well. He'll be taking part of a question-and-answer session alongside Russell T. Davies with Murray Gold. So um, not only are you going to be enjoying great music um, you know, at this concert, but you'll get some, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll get some juicy bits about the upcoming um, series as well, Series 3 or the 2007 series. Well, I'm sure they're not going to reveal too much. But... <laughs> It is on the anniversary week of Doctor Who, so, um, and it's also um, around that same week we should be getting the soundtrack. The Murray Gold soundtrack is uh, rumored to be released at that time. I, I'm very, very stoked about this because for me, the Doctor Who theme, even if I weren't a fan of the show, is, is still a very, very interesting piece of music. Primarily because if one studies it, it's just the way that this thing was put together. But it sounds so ethereal, it sounds so alien, has this unique quality to it. That it's, it's one thing when it was put together the way it was put together some 40 odd years ago. But to have a, a full orchestrated arrangement backing it up. So much to a point that when you're hearing the French horns in the first eight bars, the, the first thing I think to myself are three words, the oncoming storm. <laughs> and, and, and you know that, that obviously something is bound to happen leading up in, 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 into, the, into, the familiar, uh, into the familiar tones of the theme. But, but the way this thing is done, I'm so stoked. I wish I were there for, for this concert. I know it's going to be broadcast on BBC Radio Wales at a later time. But yeah, I can't wait to get the soundtrack in my hands. Go ahead, gentlemen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's, well, it's funny you should say that because uh, Ken was telling me once how uh, I think we were having a conversation randomly. There's a program here in the UK called uh, Desert Island Discs, I think on Radio oh, yes. And he was telling me, Ken was saying how if he had to take one soundtrack, that would be it, the soundtrack to Doctor Who. Vitally important. Yeah. For me, I, I think in addition to that, it would be Jack Webb from Dragnet, his recording of Try a Little Tenderness. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm, I'm way above your heads. I apologize, gentlemen. It's Sunday. Too. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the anniversary of Doctor Who on the 23rd of November, uh, we mentioned, uh, albeit briefly in, in last week's podcast, that we were going to do a meetup. Uh, on Second Life, the online community, mm -hmm, and yes. uh, we've decided why not do it on Doctor Who's anniversary, it's yes. close enough, mm -hmm. uh, the 23rd of November, and we're going to do shifts, Lewis and myself, so to ensure that as many people will be able to meet uh, as possible, uh, and that way we will, uh, you know, because... Doc 2 Podshock is an international podcast and we have listeners from all over the globe. Uh, we thought, why not do it in shifts and why not try and do uh, a time as long as possible so that uh, as many pe we can get as many people together uh, over the period of, uh, I don't know, say six hours. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to decide on a specific it's time set at the moment. We're just going to leave it open-ended for the time being yeah. and get back to you with details a bit later on. But the 23rd of November... Uh, in the meantime, if you want to download Second Life, go to secondlife.com um, and sign up for an account and download the program. And then all you need to do is type in your account details and your password, and you can get exploring in, in, in Second Life. And uh, we'll probably hold it somewhere in uh, Doctor Who land. Yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, most likely. Now, we do realize that this also falls on the U.S. holiday Thanksgiving so, but as James had just mentioned, we're going to be covering such a, uh, it will be, the, the time span that will be there will enable you to, you know, still join us while still doing your family obligations with turkey and merriment and all that. So, uh, oh yeah, that's what we normally do on Thanksgiving, don't we? <laughs> family and merriment. Yes. What a great combination. So we do have Sorry. a we have a forum going. We have a, a thread in our forum about it. So if you have uh, any thoughts about Second Life or questions or whatever, we'd be more than happy to address it there. And as we originally said last week, it will enable all of us uh, from all around the globe to get together in a virtual environment, you know, and and interact with each other at least there, barring a you know a real world encounter. And it's mm. um it's on the anniversary, so we'll have a big Doctor Who birthday bash. It's, yeah, Doctor Who's celebrating its big, big four three. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also speaking of, uh, of announcements here on on Doctor Who Podshot, we may as well get them all out of the way in one big go. Um, I was just going to mention that uh, last week we set the challenge, of course, to uh, sort out a promo for Doctor Who Podshot every single week. Well, it seemed that way for a long time, anyway we had pretty much decided that after the show we would uh, get together and record a promo. But, you know, things being what they are and, you know, we have, it takes a long time to record and so on, we just never get around to recording this promo and we can never think of any decent ideas. 
But we know that you guys are incredibly creative, the listeners of the show, and very, very talented, just from all the submissions that people have sent in from the past. So uh, there's, there's a thread in our forum. You can write down a script that we will read out. Or alternatively, you can just send in a submission as to a promo that we can send to other people and get them to play on their podcasts or whatever. And uh, the one which we think is the best, we they'll win a small prize. We haven't decided upon the prize, but uh, yeah, well, rest assured, it'll be something interesting and mm -hmm. definitely Doctor Who related. Yes. Yeah. So we're looking forward to your submission. So get busy and um, uh, and James, did you just mention that it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be limited to a script? It could actually be a, the complete audio piece. As yeah, because I, I know I, I, it was kind of a bit misleading. Thank you for for well, you were me out typing that message as we were kind of discussing it. You know, while we we're you know recording it last time. So yeah, so it was still uh, evolving. <laughs> indeed, it was just uh, a bit of a brain fart, I guess you could say at the time. Well, we do want to make a mention that uh, we had reported in previous shows that our, that Deborah Watling was going to be on the Sea Cruise, the Doctor Who Sea Cruise, and unfortunately, due to uh, acting engagements, that she's going to have to bow out because um, she has um, acting jobs. Which obviously, any time when you're dealing with conventions, these you know their careers have to come first, and it's understandable. Mm. So. Mm. Um, the, the, the Doctor Who Sea Cruise organizers have now um, confirmed Stuart Bevan, uh, who played Professor Clifford, Clifford Jones from the Green Death episode, the, the uh, classic John Pertwee episode that uh, saw the departure of Katie Manning, Joe Grant, and uh, she ran off with uh, Professor Clifford Jones. So uh, now you can confront um, Stuart Bevan, who played Clifford Jones on that account. He'll be on board with um, with um, <laughs> Nicholas Courtney. Nicholas Thank Courtney. You. Thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I speaking of brain farts. I was just having one. I was like, <laughs> he'll be on board. She'll be on. He'll, he'll be on board with the Brigadier. What's his name again? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes, hello. This is Stuart Bevan here, and uh, I'm looking forward very much to seeing you all on the uh, Caribbean cruise for the uh, Who cruise and doing the workshops with you. And um, well, we're going to have a lot of fun, and uh, it should be wonderful. So, look forward to seeing you. This is Stuart Bevan saying goodbye for now. And, and speaking of the Doctor Who saying Sea Cruise, uh, the, the 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 person that puts it together, the person that's responsible for these great Sea Cruises, is uh, Dan Harris, and we're hoping to have him on the show next week. So that's something to look forward to, and we'll talk more about uh, this Sea Cruise as well, as well as past Sea Cruises. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you about Paul and Dan from a convention table. Uh, he and I are going to be in Hollywood, for uh, Hollywood, Florida, for a convention sometime next week. It's the first weekend of November. And uh, I will say this. Dan has, uh, has been doing this ever since 1988 uh, for the 25th anniversary of Doctor Who when he had uh, Sylvester McCoy and, and made their souls rest in peace. John Ethan Turner and Gary Downey. Nicholas Courtney also showed up for that first one. In fact, I think Nick is the most traveled. I think, I think Nick and Silver are probably on a tie right now for the most traveled cruise participants. He's had several of them uh, in between uh, 1988 and, and, and the present. And uh, I'll tell you one thing, Dan knows his stuff when it comes to things like this uh, for, for preparations for uh, 
uh, for a cruise activity. Of course, uh, it doesn't hurt to have your mother who'd been in the travel business for years. So well, obviously Dan has known about these things, a few tricks of the trade. And he's always provided uh, not, not just also a good rate, but also a good time and something to do as well. Uh, hence the, uh, the video um, uh, workshops, workshops that, yeah. that, that he has had as well in past and um and, and they've 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 done quite well indeed and uh dan uh dan will not be one to to, to say this but uh but dan is a thorough professional on this matter and uh, there are a number of individuals who uh, who i know he really wants to do to get a number of folks uh on board and uh, it's it's kind of difficult in the respects when you're trying to it's one thing to get them on the cruise but you got to fly them all the way across the atlantic next year he's planning one uh, uh, leaving Southampton in the UK. Ports of call include Oslo, Copenhagen, uh, Helsingborg, the, the, both of them are in Sweden, obviously. No, wait, I'm sorry, Denmark for Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. Helsingborg is in Sweden, and Amsterdam, uh, where they're going to uh, be, um, I, th I think, more or less taking a tour of uh, th that city, which uh, was the setting for uh, the Peter Davison story, Ark of Infinity, back in 1982. Uh, so, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make it a point to drag Dan over to a microphone and uh, have him talk. <laughs> well, we do appreciate that. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's something to look forward to. Dan Harris of the Doctor Who Sea Cruises. And if I'm mistaken, he, um, doesn't he do other um, science fiction oriented sea cruises? Um, actually, no, he wants to, he wants to, but, but right now the, the Who Cruise has been, uh, if you will, there's a gentleman's agreement between him and Joe Motes, who does Star Trek themed cruises. I see. So, uh, so Joe do the, uh, the Trek cruise. Dan has had some other folks from different science fiction series, yes, but it's primarily been Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're probably thinking about the uh, Los Angeles cruise, uh, about a couple of years ago. Bob May from, uh, who was in the robot suit from Lost in Space yes. was called in, at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Primarily because you know uh, Bob lived in L.A. and he's not going to pass up a free cruise, so uh, so that's what happened there. And uh, and obviously after the cruise ended, uh, anybody that was uh, anybody could more or less go on to uh, the Gallifrey One convention uh, after they docked in Los Angeles. But uh, he's trying to keep a Doctor Who flavored, especially for this next one coming up in 07. And I'm looking forward to, to going to this one. Uh, primarily because uh, hopefully there's there's a better shot of getting more actors from the series involved from the past and hopefully from uh, from the present one as well, uh, considering the uh, the dates are uh, July 14th through the 21st, and that uh, the ending of the cruise coincides, I think, with Bad Wolf, which uh, Tenth Planet is putting up in Manchester. Oh wow! Oh, I'm sorry, Birmingham, Birmingham, Birmingham. Yeah. The passing of Peter Barkworth. Oh That's yes, right. Yeah, it's a, a good veteran good. character actor and. Um... The guest star on the Ice Warriors, uh, passed uh, away this Lita past Clint. Week. Yes, that's right. Yes. Leader Clint, the uh, very anally retentive leader of the base to which the Ice Warriors were about to advance on, but the Doctor managed to save the day in the end. Yay! Yeah, he uh, passed away at 77. He had suffered a stroke two weeks ago, and uh, um, he died in hospital. Was um, unmarried and survived by his sister. And he's um, also probably best known for playing the role of Mark. Uh, Telford in the 1979 series Telford's Change and he's also appeared in the Avengers and won two BAFTA Best Actor Awards for his television work. Um, I, know, I, I do know that Loose Cannon Productions had um, 
had requested uh, an interview uh, with him, and which he graciously gave uh, for the reconstruction video for uh, the Ice Warriors. So uh, if, if anybody's mm -hmm. interested in that, um, I'm sure they can find a Loose Cannon website somewhere. But that's, uh, that's probably the latest uh, piece of, the most recent piece of information we've seen uh, with him in association with um, what he's done for Doctor Who. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of sad. In a way, I'm kind of glad that, you know, we have a new series going on, but, but, but these, but these uh, folks who've been involved in these things as far back as 40 years ago, you know, they ain't getting any younger, and yeah. um, we, we have to make it a point. That that's, that's why, not to toot my own horn, but that's one of the reasons why I created American Who was so that, uh, you know, someone who's my nephew's age right now, 20 years from now, if he wanted to listen to Barry Letts talk about his involvement during the Pertwee years, he could. And that's, that's why I uh, made it a point to have that opportunity. And um, so, uh, yeah, if anybody's got a microphone and, and a tape recorder or a mini-disc machine, you know, find these folks, interview them, talk with them. And uh, by all means, uh, I'm, I'm sure they'd be very, very pleased to, to, to know that you remember them still uh, 30, 40 years on. Absolutely. The, the Ice Warriors dates back to 1967. It's a Patrick Troughton story. It's a Patrick Troughton story, which I believe um, it was the introduction of the Ice Warriors, was it not? It was. Yes. Yeah. All right, so we're and speaking of American Who, we're going to uh, talk about that right after this break, and we're going to come back and talk to Joey, who's with us today, and about American Who. We're going to um, also um, torch some wood as well. <laughs> With an emphasis on the word torch, um, I, I won't go any further. It's a family show, allegedly, so. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. This is Deborah Watson, and you are listening to Doctor Who Podshock. Listen to what people are saying about the Sci-Fi Sea Cruise. Dan called me up and said uh, we're having a writer's workshop, as well as doing this cruise, as well as going to Mayan ruins. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm like, all right, all right, I'll come. As a writer, I want to get more tips, find out a little bit more about what can help me in my craft. You're basically taking a vacation with the actor, even though it's not planned that way. It just happens. It was just a chance to meet fans, meet people, be sure that I wasn't the only one on the entire planet that was watching it, essentially. I guess just to have fun and, and hang out with different people. I'm just glad to be in the nice weather. So I would love to do this every year. You'll have a great time, too, meeting your favorite celebrities on the Sci-Fi Sea Cruise. For full information, visit our website at members.aol.com slash sfcruise. That's members.aol.com slash sfcruise. The Sci-Fi Sea Cruise. I cross the void beyond the mind. And we're back with Doctor Who Podshock. Once again, joining us is Joey Reynolds from American Who, the sci-fi radio guy. And, um, Hello. 
and also we have James um, James Norton, who's um, normally from the UK, but he's um, coming in from the Netherlands today. Yep, will and... be for quite a while as well, I suppose. <laughs> so what? So what brings you to Amsterdam? Is it um, is it the people? Uh, is it is it is it the <laughs> nightlife, the atmosphere? It's the coffee bars, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm out here uh, working for a year. Uh, I'm a scientist, and I'm working in a, a big chemical plant here in the south of the Netherlands. Picture James with a white lab coat and little um, gloves, <laughs> and specs, yeah, pocket protector, etc. Working with chemicals in Amsterdam for a year. <laughs> okay, let's 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 find out how sober he is. That's uh, going for a drug dealer. Let's find out how hungry this man is in 20 minutes. It reminds me of uh, a scene from Spaced. Uh, well, it's funny because whenever I go to an airport, I always get stopped and searched, which I don't mind. But um, one year, uh, I had to quote a line from Spaced in the beginning of Spaced, which is a British television comedy where um, this, the, the main, main characters are in a cafe. And, uh, you know... The main character asks uh, the lady character, you know, uh, what's up? And, uh, and she's like, oh, oh, what have you got? And he says, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were a drug dealer. And he says, uh, thanks very much. <laughs> but genuinely, he's quite uh, proud of that fact. So, uh, yeah, I, I said to one of the uh, guards in in an airport once, do you think I'm a drug dealer or something? And he said, frankly, yes. So I said, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I just have that look about me. Maybe it's just you heard my accent and thought, creepy British guy, let's nail him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking well, of... could... I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no go I'm ahead. Saying it could be worse, it could be me. But go ahead, gentlemen. <laughs> well, speaking of... <laughs> Creepy guys. I didn't want to leave out Ken Deep as well when, in my intro back to the segment. So. <laughs> Thanks. Don't leave out the creepy guys. <laughs> I mean, three for three on a security screening at the airport in the last eighteen months. <laughs> so make what you will out of the random checks. Yeah, I, indeed. I, I mean that with great affection when I say creepy guy. <laughs> this reminds me back to last week when you were saying how you were getting goofy together. But, uh, yeah, we won't go there because, as you say, this is. Wait a minute. A let's let's not get into torture yet. Let's. <laughs> uh, since we do have Joey on board with us, Joey Reynolds from American Who, we had um, invited him uh, to be on our show back when we did the roundtable discussions, and uh, at that time, uh, scheduled his schedule didn't permit it. At that time, I believe Joey, you were moving, and I hope that went well. Oh, it did. It did. Everything went well. Everything went well indeed. Um. Uh, but you're probably asking about what, what the nature of the situation now is with American Who, and uh, and what's going on with with those things in particular. So yes, we, we, we you know when there's a new episode of American Who, we do post it on our website, and we have a lot of our listeners do you know uh, listen to American Who as well. So you know I'm sure they're anxiously awaiting to find out when um, 
you know, what's going to happen next. I believe the last the last thing that you did was an, an archive episode of uh, Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee, or, um, wasn't it? Yeah, during the summer during the summer months, uh, really uh, the the top two requested shows were the Troughton tribute, which was done for the 85th birth anniversary of Pat Troughton who was born in uh, 1920, and uh, John Pertwee, uh, which would, uh, I think that would be for the, um, I think it was for, am I right in saying his, no, it, was, it was his 85th birth anniversary as well. Yeah, so, and uh, I managed to get a number of things together and uh, just put those up, and, and there we had the summer. Um, but, but a few things also happened as well. I, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that uh, for about the past three years, I was co-host and co-producer with David Dorica on a radio talk show called Sci-Fi Overdrive. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Great show. Great show. Um, uh, you know, well, I thought it was a great show. David thought it was a great show. Uh, the, the listeners thought it was a great show. Uh, management of the radio network that we had our show on thought it was three hours to fill on the overnights against Art Bell. And uh, suffice to say that um, I had uh, I kind of took the advice that Peter Davison had took had uh, had taken from Patrick Troughton when he took on the role of the Doctor. Don't do it for more than three years. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I kind of promised myself if I wasn't going to make a profit after three years, I was going to back out. Um, now, now I kind of realized that uh, terrestrial radio. First and foremost, I do want to say this: the people who put this show, Sci-Fi Overdrive, gave us the permission to put this show on the air. I do want to thank them. They know who they are. Mm -hmm. And I also realize that uh, radio is a business, and I realize that they have this mindset that a show like Sci-Fi Overdrive, and, and here's where we get into the guts of the matter, kids, uh, a show they believe uh, that has, uh, uh, that's of the caliber of Sci-Fi Overdrive would not make it on the daytime hours, would not be broadcast during the daytime hours, because their mindset, which is traditional, is... Oh well, uh, we, there, there's you know sci-fi. Nobody nobody likes sci-fi. It's it's too it's too esoteric. There's not enough people listening for this, and and all I keep thinking to myself is, okay, factor this out. Seven of the top ten highest-grossing films of all time were science fiction <laughs> films. Television programs like Star Trek, Farscape, Doctor Who, and Stargate SG-1 dominate DVD sales upon their release. Sci-Fi Channel is amongst the most successful basic cable nets in the past five years. Its original series and films and miniseries finishing in the top ten of the cable uh, of the cable ratings. Books like Harry Potter and The Lord of the Rings have dominated book sales for the past three years, and their films have greatly influenced an increase in sales of fantasy titles. And kids, get this, are reading. And most importantly, science fiction talk radio is prevalent on terrestrial radio stations across America and the world, and it's also a mainstay on the internet, on internet radio as well as podcast, hence the program you're listening to right now. Granted, it's a small segment of science fiction, but it's science fiction nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And 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 then take a look at what's going on right now with, uh, oh, I, I forgot the name of, um, I forgot the name, I could easily pull this up here because I just uh, did this, uh, did this uh, little report. Um, there, there's a cable company that, uh, where is it here? Here it is, here it is. Um, Fearnet. Uh, it's an on-demand movie service. Uh, Sony and Lionsgate uh, films from the Sony and Lionsgate libraries are going to be available on demand. More than 1,000 horror movies from those libraries, which you can put a, put up pick up as video on demand online on the internet and over mobile phones. And uh, and and people are saying, oh, science fiction is 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 too is too esoteric for for our audience. And, and also, uh, Marvel Comics is partnering with the, with the CBS daytime drama Guiding Light to produce an episode in which a character is zapped by an electrical current and becomes infused with superpowers. 
and, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you know, I, I guess science fiction is not a, a huge part of popular culture. I, I guess I, I guess it's just uh, it's for a bunch of nerd boys who happen to have nothing else better to do but stay in their parents' basements. Of course it's permeating. Uh, it, it's, it's permeating popular culture. I mean, we're in the 21st century, for goodness sakes. And what, what really bothers me more than anything else is that, um, I, you know, I, I decided I chose to go podcast. And that's what I plan to do, and there's going to be an announcement about this very shortly. Right now I'm working, oh, great. With, a, well, I'm working with, a, with a radio outfit that's owned by uh, uh, a, a good buddy of mine up in Orlando. Uh, it's called Killer Rock Radio, krradio.com. It's a 24-hour online music station, uh, which uh, more or less, and mind you, I'm 40, so I can say this, it, it attracts the goth kids out there, you see? <laughs> And, and suffice to say, they broadcast a few other talk-flavored shows, and one of them was Sci-Fi Overdrive, and they still are. Um, but he and I have talked about the possibility of my putting on a, a specific podcast show, and we're working that out for first quarter of 07, so I will be back. But, you know, after doing a show like this, uh, the past three years national, and before that four years local, mm -hmm. you know, I've decided to go ahead and take a bit of, a, bit of a sabbatical and just uh, kind of uh, step back, take a look at my situation in life, the universe, and everything, and, and just go forward. Now... Now, American Who, will that come back? Yes, it will. Uh, it, it will, but, but not in the way that, I, uh, that, that it is, uh, at least it was currently in. Um, it's more or less just a matter of my uh, getting uh, more interviews together, taking some archived interviews, and um, possibly suggesting them to a certain website that would host these interviews. And, of course, I give the interviews uh, free out of my own goodwill. I'm not going to charge them for anything because, you know, the prime goal of, of the interviews, all the interviews I've done, as far back as my first one in 1987 with John Nathan Turner, who, God bless him, um, I, I'm, I'm sure he probably uh, didn't know what the hell I was asking him, but he was very polite, very patient, very respectful, and he also knew that if there was a tape recorder in front of him that he was going to talk about Doctor Who because that was the kind of person he was, rest yes. his soul. Mm -hmm. um, but as far back as that very first interview, you know, I, I have a complete library of, of all the stuff that I have, and... Uh, and, and that's going to benefit the fans uh, down the line. So it's just another contribution to uh, this wonderful, magnificent story yes. that I, I've always had an appreciation for. People come up to me and they ask me, why you know, this, this new show, Doctor Who, is great, but why did you like that old piece of crap? And I told them because that old piece of crap was the spirit of America. And now I know I'm, I'm getting out of soapbox here talking about it. It, You'll have to forgive me on this, but it's, it's the pioneering spirit. You have to understand that when the show was, uh, was the show was initially pitched in 1963, Verity Lambert said, "The BBC management told me that we would have their state-of-the-art facilities. We'd have their new studios, their state-of-the-art equipment. They got this dingy little basement in Lime Grove, which was around for 50 years, and they and they and they had these old machines that uh, that barely worked most of the time. So, and of course, we're not. Uh, and dare I talk about the sets and the costumes? <laughs> no, but but the thing was, they had a budget." And the famous budget of 2,000 pounds per week. And, and obviously, you know, everybody got paid first. And then whatever was left, you had to run down to the, to the local store to try and uh, figure out what the costume is going to look like for this week for the aliens. So, uh, so suffice to say, I call it the pioneering spirit of that show. And it's something you'll never find nowadays in, in modern telefantasy because you have everything that's laid at your feet. And, uh, and, and really, the, the only thing that, uh, that stands in your way is your imagination, but you have the most modern equipment. And that's why I've always appreciated a show like uh, Doctor Who, because of the fact that it was spit, tape, wire, mm -hmm. and a prayer, and, and William Hartnell stuttering throughout the first three years. And, and, and it worked. It so, worked. Sort of like our podcast here. 
<laughs> hey, well, you know, pioneering spirit. But yes. in a way, that's why that's why I also called an American Who because um, the show is the show. You might think is terribly British, and yes, it is completely, totally, utterly British. It is Britain's show. The show is made and conceived for Britain first, then the world. But there's certain elements, pioneering elements, and and that's what I call about the spirit of America, the pioneer days when, you know, when when back at the time when we just went forward westward and we didn't have to depend on cell phones or. Or, um, or, or, or telegraph or teletype or whatever it is, any form of communication. We just did it by ourselves. We didn't have to rely on any conveniences because we were the ones with the convenience. Uh, we, we were the ones who provided the convenience. We had to rough it. But we got, uh, somehow we got the job done. We made it to the Pacific Coast. And uh, we're, um, you know, we're still here after 225 years. And it's a pioneering spirit that you know, I, I'm proud to say has made my country great, albeit we've had some political troubles as of late, but we won't talk about that. But, but suffice to say, the story of America kind of reminds me of the story of Doctor Who and vice versa. And I'll shut up now. <laughs> well, you know, Doctor Who is television history. We've said it plenty of times here on our show. And, mm. um, and, and what we were talking about earlier about archiving these great um, interviews that, that you have done with people that uh, are no longer with us, unfortunately, you know, it, it, it behooves us to, to really, um, you know, document um, the show and, and the people involved with it. And it's 43 years old now. And, you know, not everyone's going to be, you know, obviously they're not, they're not being, they're not going to stay with us forever. We, we lost a lot of people just in the time that our organization, the Gallifreyan embassy has been around. Um, we, you know, and, so it's it's great that you're doing this and that you that you're going to continue doing this as well. Oh, it's an honor. It's an honor for me to do this. Uh, no, wait. Let me let me rephrase that. It's an honor that I have the ability to do this because uh, I I do have a talent, a God-given talent. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that I have a talent on loan from God. What a schmuck he is. <laughs> Um, and uh, he thinks he's God's gift to everything when he's not, but but that's another story for another time. And I'm not talking about his politics; I'm talking about just his his personality. Uh, but but the fact of the matter is, I every time I do something like this, I consider it a, a great honor just to be on the stage to do this. And I'd like to go ahead and and return the favor, and uh, and then to more or less honor them back uh, through my craft. And uh, and it, it was very very uh, lovely uh, to to more or less put together a tribute show for John Nathan Turner after he passed away. When I was doing, um, at the time, the local show was called uh, Interstellar Transmissions, and um, we, uh, that, that the week after John had passed away, I told I told the people involved with the show, I said, four weeks from now, we're going to do a one-hour tribute show to John. I know you guys probably don't even know who this guy is, or probably couldn't, couldn't give two rips about him. But it was a uh, but now it was a very important part of my life, and I'm going to be selfish about that. But it was a very important part of the show, Doctor Who, because if it weren't, and I got to say this, and there are some people that are going to tell me, you don't know what you're talking about, but if it weren't for John Nathan Turner, that show probably, just imagine if George Galatio, who is production unit manager before J&T, this is how much I know my history, if George Galatio was named the producer of Doctor Who, he probably, I wouldn't say he would have done this, but it probably would have ended up with Tom Baker dying at the end of season 18, and that would have been the show. John wanted to continue it because he knew, not so much the the the, the money making aspect of the show. Granted, it it still is in the top three money making programs that the BBC has, but also realize the goodwill that this show has. And this came at a time, 1980, when in 1978, when the Tom Baker 98 Stories Robot Through Invasion of Time came out, and uh, this was at a time. And I, you kids are you guys are too young for this. 
1978, what we had for science fiction total fantasy was the Star Wars ripoffs Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. And we, we were sick and tired of watching the same 69, 79 episodes of Star Trek. Spock's brain for the umpteenth time, please. But the thing was, at that time, Vietnam was over with. We all had a great, uh, we all had great affection for this anti-hero by the name of Hawkeye Pierce in this television series called MASH. Monty Python was huge on PBS stations nationwide. And then this, this show out of nowhere called Doctor Who pops up. And, and would you believe that PBS program planners picked up the show because they thought it was like Monty Python's Flying Circus? They thought it was a Britcom. Well, it, it could have been a Britcom in a sense because of Tom Baker, just the way his, uh, his approach to the character was. It might have seemed a bit uh, over the top or, or just uh, you know, out of, uh, off the fringe, if you will. But, but it worked. It clicked. And, and the fan base was there. And John Nathan Turner easily tapped into that, tapped into... Uh, tapped, in, tapped into the fact that he could he could promote the the show and and bring in remember the conventions the American conventions in the 1980s when there were 50,000 yeah I think well, I wouldn't say 50,000 maybe there were 50,000 people at least for the Chicago conventions but about 10 to 25,000 people at these weekend conventions all over the place across America just to see John Levine yeah. now I'm not knocking John mm -hmm. Levine or anything but I mean you get the idea here yes yeah no, and we, and uh, yeah we, we, were, we were there I just wanted I, I know you yeah. said we were too young for this but I I know I consider myself ageless but um we were we were actually at that time at that time period as well doing this as well so um yeah we, we our history is a shared one it, it is it's a, and you know something I I regret I lived in Louisiana at the time uh from 1976 to 86 and uh, I, there, there was, uh, we didn't have much of the conventions in the southeast U.S. as much as there were in the northeastern uh, states. So I felt kind of jealous. And, and, uh, and suffice to say, my, my first ever convention was when I came down here about 20 years ago to Florida. And it was in South Florida. It was called Omnicon. And John was there along with, uh, oh, who else? Uh, Gary Downey and, uh, and Nicola Bryant was there. And, um, and, and that was, that was like really cool. Just, I mean, and uh, that was more or less a convention's last, uh, last two, uh, last years, waning years. Um, but, but still for me, just as a 20 year old kid walking down, walking down the halls of this convention, just completely wide eyed, you know, and, and, and just, uh, just being with these folks and, and realizing it was, it was, it wasn't so much as a convention. It was, it was more or less a, a, a family gathering, which 20 years later, we still see these folks probably from time to time. Maybe they've dropped out. They've grown up. They've, they've, they've gotten, got, got married. They got kids. They got divorced. Maybe hopefully they're still married. Um, and their kids are probably growing up watching, uh, watching the show. And, and, and we've all kind of enmeshed our own lives with, with, with these other individuals who happen to still remain as fans of this program because of this wonderful idea, this wonderful concept, this wonderful element that is like lightning in a bottle. This will never, ever happen again. Doctor Who never will, never will. No, I mean, I'm not saying the concept. I'm just talking about the overall feeling you get from the people who've worked on this show ever since day one. They all knew whether it was, uh, whether it was uh, in, uh, uh, doing rehearsals for uh, 100,000 BC and an earthly child back in September of 63, all the way to uh, the initial rehearsals when Christopher Eccleston, uh, you know, and, and Billy Piper. It's like they have something special. You cannot get this with, with EastEnders. You can't get this with uh, Casualty. You can't get this. You can't get this with any other show. And um, that's why I've always had a deep appreciation and affection for it. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, yeah. to paraphrase William Hartnell himself, he says something along the lines like, "Once you're, you know, once you're touched by Doctor Who, it stays with you for the rest of your life," and something along those lines. Yeah, that and we love the show. Let's not kill it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
So um, and now the show has brought on um, other shows, and one of them is just premiered this past weekend, and as we're recording this, and there's going to be its third episode is uh, being transmitted tonight, and the show we're talking about is um, Torchwood, and that's an acronym of Doctor Who, as we all know, and it's um, it features a character called Captain Jack, which originated from the 2005 series, a series one, if you will, with Christopher Eccleston. And now he has his own series with a whole new cast of characters in the Doctor Who universe. And um, so we're going to um, talk a little bit about these two episodes that we have seen, which is episode one, Everything Changes, and episode two, Day One. So um, initial thoughts, and who would like to start this um, conversation? Well, one of the one of the things that that uh, that struck me when we were talking about whether we were going to do Torchwood information, Torchwood news, or cover Torchwood on Doctor Who Podshock, and we were debating: do we include it? Do we make it a separate thing? After seeing the show, probably the the first thing that comes to mind is this is definitely not Doctor Who. Uh, and and that being said, it made our decision prior to even seeing the show that we were going to do something for Torchwood separately to uh, Podshock now made that decision the correct one because it, it is very different from Doctor Who. Um, my initial reaction is that, again, it is very early, but it seems to lack the charm that Doctor Who has. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that little that spark. That, little, that uh... Yeah, you know, and, and, and to be really honest with you, my first impression is, I mean, I really, I really enjoy you know Captain Jack being in the show, but um, it's just way too Men in Black for me. Uh, that's, yeah, you that's... had mentioned this once before when when the concept was you know uh, put out there that you said that it was very much like Men in Black. But it, it, I mean, a lot of it's like Men in Black meets Ghostbusters meets um, I don't know what else. But it, it, it is a lot of reused <laughs> concepts in there. It's damn near everything else, it seems, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and when, I, when I say that it lacks the charm of Doctor Who, what, what, what really strikes me about it, and I was watching you know, both episodes over the past week, I was thinking to myself that um, there was nothing that really separated it from some of the things that we get on American television, be it uh, along the lines of a Stargate or an Andromeda or, you know, some of the... Some, do you know, I, tough to, to pin it down in, in words, but doc, there's something that separates Doctor Who. There's something that's magical about it. And I, and I didn't think that Torchwood had that magic. And to be quite honest with you, if it wasn't for Captain Jack, I, I probably wouldn't be interested in it at all. Mm. Yeah, it's an, it's a, there's an interesting thread by, it was started by, I believe, Doc Skeptical, who did the Space Museum review um, in our last, po- was it our last podcast or the one before? Yes. Yeah, anyway, it was what, the last podcast. He had uh, sort of the thread, if it wasn't related to Doctor Who, you know, would you watch it? And it's, um, it's an interesting take. If you were to take the Doctor Who elements out of it, you know, the, the, the references to the series that we know and love, would we really be watching it? And I'm not sure if we would. You know, I, I'm not sure, at least after these two episodes, if I would still, you know, I, I maybe would give it a few more episodes and see where it goes. And, 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 you know, but I probably wouldn't go out of the way to catch it all the time, you know. Yeah. Is it a good show? Yes. Is it a great show? There's, there's still, you know, we have to let a few more episodes go through. If the episodes continue to be what they are, which are good, but not great, 
I don't know if I'm, you know. If, yeah, you I don't, don't know, know if I'm, you're I'm, hooked. I'm going yeah. to be out of my way to see one every week, you know. Um, well, I'm going to take a slightly different stance. I, I did enjoy it. Um, I, I'm not going to say that the show isn't without its faults, because it is. And um, I think to a certain extent, um, Russell T. Davies is following very much the same formula. I, I, I felt that too. Like, so everything, everything changes, changes yeah. reminded me so much of Rose yeah, and the fact here. that you are introducing a concept or uh, be it an, organ, an organization or a character through another character's eyes. Um, and while that's very clever, um, I think it only works if you do it so many times and beyond that it gets kind of a bit boring. And I'm not going to say that it, it wasn't an interesting episode, it was, but I think that that had to lay the groundwork for the rest of the series. Um, and what I kind of an, annoyed me about it was is that it was a bit pretentious in places. Um, like how they would just randomly be stood on these massive buildings in Cardiff for no apparent reason, other than to kind of showcase Cardiff. It seems like they've got this whole thing going on with the Cardiff, Cardiff Tourist Board where they'll... Uh, get them to stand on the, the most picturesque buildings and take all these fantastic panoramic shots with, from helicopters and so on. But uh, really, it's a little bit overdone, I, I think, and you kind of get a bit bored of it. it. After the first shot, you think, wow, that's terrific. But then you realize, hold on, there's actually no point whatsoever to the plot. For, you know, it's just in there because they can. And yeah, they, they obviously they, needed to fill a few minutes. So that's as if they're did. featuring Cardiff as one of the characters, really. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And it, there's no need, like, at the end of the episode, they stood on uh, th this massive theatre in Cardiff, and there was no need for them to be stood there. They could have been in, in the well, Torchwood coffee break room, for heaven's what's sake, puzzling having to the same me, conversation. What's puzzling to me so far in the first two episodes is that Torchwood was built out to be this, this institution, this, this something that's larger than life, but that it's sort of underground, away from the government and away from, you know, society. Uh, yet it's, it's, it's like Lewis once said, the Scooby-Doo gang. Yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't give the impression that this is some massive secret organization. It's four or five people in a thing underneath well, the... Yeah, it doesn't you know. seem like they are accountable to anyone. They, they seem to be on their own. But, and... what, but the problem is, Lewis, what gives them the authority? With UNIT, they were United well, Nations. not and, only the authority, things... but what about the funding? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I, you're I, suggesting... I kind of... Well, you're suggesting, that, uh, in this case, that Torchwood is not so much more UNIT, it's more the London... Uh, was it the London Investigative and Detective Agency? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Linda. Yeah. You know, yeah. With, with UNIT, you had this impression because they were the United Nations that they could supersede the British military or American military for a for a global cause. Yeah, I don't yeah, get yeah. that impression from what I've seen with Torchwood, either in the last two episodes of season two or the first two episodes of Torchwood. Well, I kind of got that impression a little bit because when he was d explaining about how many different Torchwoods there were, but nonetheless, um, it, I admit it does it does seem a little bit unprofessional, uh, and you 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 don't quite believe that you know like as you say, Ken, four or five guys uh, can get together and just decide to randomly form this organization under Cardiff and with all this elaborate sets and. Where's the money coming from? And it, it just doesn't seem plausible. Whereas if you 
it's just a simple thing to throw United Nations in there. It's more believable, and you can appreciate it and understand well, it on e so many more Even in levels. the unit days, if they didn't have the money to to create a um a, a large scale military force being shown on screen, they would trick you. Hey, you couple jeeps drive by, and maybe you know some kind of heavy artillery or something, and, and you just kind of got fooled. Your imagination helped play a bit of a role. That mm -hmm. well, here's this brigadier who's got all these men, and he's going to you know he's got some authority, and sometimes he has to call Geneva, sometimes he's liaisoning with uh, uh, with the, uh, the minister of defense, or you know. But again, okay, Torchwood's supposed to be outside that, but. It's a secret organization that all the cops seem to know about because they let them right in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not so secret. I mean, like you said, everyone seems to know about it. They, they, they're constantly, you know, using the name Torchwood all the time. And um, even the sets, like in the Torchwood um, headquarters, like if you look in the background, everything's labeled Torchwood. Torchwood. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. <laughs> it's not so secret even, after all. Even their car, their, that big uh, Range Rover uh, that's pimped out or however you mm -hmm. want to call it it's got torchwood <laughs> scrawled across the side of it you can't miss it yeah um, and I, I don't know i just again I, i'm the, the 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 stringing together of the new torchwood series with what we first started learning in the christmas invasion about they had these you know they had these uh, lasers hidden around london i i had no impression of that with this show i had no impression that it was larger than life yeah i mean it's it's very easy to criticize at this stage, I think, because I think we can all agree that the show is good and interesting and it's going somewhere, but we haven't seen how it's going to unfold and we don't know what's in store for everything. So it's it's quite easy to, to criticize, I guess, for the time yeah, being. Yeah, it's only been so two episodes. So. I'm still, I'm still going to keep watching and I'm very much enjoying it. Um, but I agree that, that it's not perfect. It doesn't have that magic, as you say, Ken, that Doctor Who has that just grabs well, I, you. And... I, I, too, will be watching uh, because given the choice between Torchwood and Threshold, I'm watching Torchwood. You know. <laughs> that, and it's, I, it's, it's very cleverly sandwiched in between Doctor Who series. So it's, it's not Doctor Who, but it's kind of half Doctor Who, so it's better than nothing. You're getting, like, Doctor Who breadcrumbs in it, you know, a hand yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> Wetting your appetite for the next series, and you're just like, you know, going through withdrawal symptoms. But after seeing <laughs> it, I, I think that we made the correct decision to, you know, and we, again, we're we're giving our initial impression because everybody there was such a build up to this. Mm. Uh, but after this, you know, our concentration for Torchwood will be in uh, an occasional episode that might be off to the side, you know, a separate separate situation. Because uh, I'm glad we didn't intertwine them. Yeah, well, mm. because our mainstay is Doctor Who and, and always will be, and, and this is just um, something off on, like you said, a side dish, and uh, the meal is still Doctor Who. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, my, my initial reaction was um, the same as James when I was watching Everything Changes. It was just very, I, I thought it was very similar to the formula used in Rose, it was, and to the point to the very end where it was, I mean, Captain Jack could have almost said, did I mention it travels in time? You know, as... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was, um, it was just so reminiscence of that formula that we've seen already I, I thought day one was a bit better because now that everything changes got the groundwork you know you know they set up the series already so the, mm, now with day yeah. one you were able to get into the characters a bit more uh there was more humor there was more action mm, there was just uh, mm. just a little bit more um to what i think we may 
come to expect in the rest of the series. But Well, and it was a good thing they aired the episodes back-to-back because you got the pilot out of the way. Mm-hmm. And, and if someone may have been turned off a bit by the pilot, they had a chance to see a, a more meaty example of what Torchwood was all about in the next mm-hmm. episode. Uh, and, and I don't want to make it seem like I'm being extremely negative about Torchwood. I mean, if I, I was going to list the positives of Torchwood, um, I, first off, Captain Jack just steals the show and, and by the second of episode. Um, I really like Gwen's character, and I really enjoyed the fact that the British police are portrayed in a very realistic manner, uh, meaning that there are certain procedures, and, and you know, there's a concentration to things that on American police dramas, we have a tendency, uh, as an example, with some of the CSI series, um, they forget about basic things like search warrants. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a staple of American policing, you know, American police work. Uh, and yet they forget well, it in such hit television After series. the Patriot Act, I'm not too sure about that. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so to see um, to see a police officer portrayed in a realistic manner, or at least my impression, of course, I'm, I'm not a British citizen, so uh, James might be able to, to uh, relate this a little bit better, but it seemed that they were always portrayed in an honest manner, yes. Well, from, from what I gather uh, on this, I have not seen, except for like bits and pieces, on, uh, on, on the first two episodes, but uh, I've more or less, have, uh, during your conversation, I've kind of uh, been doing some research, or at least as to what the overall reaction has been, uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, SFX uh, said that they absolutely loved it. Uh, the Guardians, the review was more guarded, saying that it was um, uh, saying that it was, despite its pretensions to a more adult audience, Torchwood never threatens to stray into the sort of darker, seamier territory explored by Buffy or Ultraviolet, which is occasionally reminiscent. Uh, and uh, I, I believe that um, uh, Charlie Brooker also wrote that. Uh, Quote, it contains swearing, blood, and sex, yet it still somehow feels like a children's program. 13-year-olds should should love it. Anyone else is likely to be more than a little confused, which isn't to say Torchwood is bad, just bewildering and very, very silly. End quote. Um, Bewildering, that is. That's a key word. But, um, you know, obviously it's still early days. Um, We all probably took a look at Rose. And we thought, oh, this isn't the Doctor Who I watched, and it wasn't intended to be the Doctor Who we watched. And of course, at the end of the series, you know, we, you know, we we, we kind of felt extremely sad that uh, Chris Reckleston was leaving the show. But but yet we mm. we realized that you know this was a great first season, and uh, you know we're on David Tennant, and uh, let's let's get things done from there. So I, I, I haven't disagree felt... with you about Rose. I from my first watching of Rose, I thought, wow, this is Doctor Who. Well, it, well, it was different. It was more it, polished, perhaps, but it still had the feel of classic Doctor Who. Except for the fact that the Doctor took a secondary role in Rose. It was, I mean, it was called Rose, and I guess for a reason. It really did feature Rose, and the Doctor mm. was... You didn't, you didn't really get to know the Doctor until a little bit more further, you know... Um, yeah, like and, three episode three yeah. or four, maybe, of the first series. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, but what I can safely say, though, about this is, is that, at least in my opinion, Torchwood kind of resembles the times that we're living in right now. Whereas you had Unit, and Unit was a tip of the hat to the Quatermass series uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. in, in British media science fiction. Uh, so uh, at that time, uh, the military was very much involved. You had the Doctor who was, uh, Unit was establishment, the Doctor was anti-establishment. He had extreme contempt for anybody in positions of power, unless if they did something to benefit mankind. 
and he was only Lethbridge Stewart's good friend uh, because he knew that uh, Lethbridge Stewart had to do these things. He didn't want to do these things uh, when taking orders and such, except for the, the Silurian affair, but that's mm -hmm. besides the point. But, but in the case of Torchwood here, uh, we're looking at um, kind of guessing, uh, you know, things aren't what they seem to be, Although from, from what your description is about how everything is labeled Torchwood from uh, from the vehicles they use to to, to the uh, to the pen and pencil sets, it kind of makes me wonder. And this is I hope I'm terribly wrong about this. It kind of makes me wonder whether or not this is a television show that was created not as a piece of television but as a marketing tool or as a continuation of a marketing tool. We all know that Doctor Who and marketing have been hand in hand ever since the Daleks came out in 1963, and of course, you know, Dalek mania ensued at least for the next few years, and 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 that's uh, that's all they wanted for Christmas was a Dalek. Um, I, I'm kind of a little bit uh, concerned about the fact that. Is this show being created as a piece of television, or is it being created for 13 episodes to come out on DVD to have uh, certain times associated with this and make as much money as you can? And and that's what also has concerned me with this new series of Doctor Who. Not taking anything away from Russell Davies and what he's done, because he brought this show back and he brought this show back big time, taking bringing the fans back. Obviously, they'd be there at Hello, but taking non-fans who loathed the original classic series and and have made them, you know, uh, and have, have more or less put them in the position where Doctor Who for them is appointment television, something they never give two thoughts to five years ago. But I really truly hope that. Torchwood was not created, and hopefully in this case, Doctor Who was not brought back as a marketing tool to try and generate more cash, more money for uh, for, for BBC. Is, is it television for television's sake, or is it television for marketing's sake? Uh, I know we're in early innings on that too, and I like to talk about these things from a, from a, from a business aspect of it because I, I like to get, be involved in this business as much as possible. Uh, of course, we could also talk about Sarah Jane Investigates as well, including that canine animated series too. You know, is it is it are we going to the well one time too many here? And I hope that uh, in, in Torchwood, where that's concerned, uh, it's it's been branded as Doctor Who meets X Files. I hope it works well as. A series that, even though it's a product of Doctor Who, it's independent of Doctor Who, and that there is an audience for it. Maybe they won't watch Doctor Who on Saturday nights, but they will watch Torchwood, and, and, and we'll see what happens. It's still early well, in The, the problem is, is that it's neither X-Files nor Doctor Who. Hmm. Uh, if it was dark like the X-Files and serious as we originally were, were being led to believe, uh, I wouldn't have a problem with that. It, it's, it, uh, it tries to be serious, but then there are some aliens that are a little too Doctor Who-y, where they're, um, the threat isn't there, at threat level, I don't know, it, it's, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it hasn't worked for me yet, and, and, and perhaps there's, there's more to come, you know, Doctor Who monsters always had a certain side to them, they were a little bit spooky, but you, they, they you were always safe with them. It was yeah. safe yeah, they were always a bit ridiculous, weren't they? And you yeah, well, you know, their, their plan would just go terribly wrong. Um, so far, there's been really no example of that uh, in the first two. So again, we have we do have some time on this, but, but well, um, I, I I don't I don't see it as Doctor Who. I don't see it as X Files. As a matter of fact, I see it the closest analogy. And Lewis and I were talking about this last week. Is we. Uh, thinking a little bit along the lines of like a UFO or the Quartermass, not even, the Quartermass at least was well-written. And I'm talking about really well-written, like groundbreaking well-written. What about Sapphire and Steel? 
Well, I guess I got my answer. <laughs> no, really, because I understand that the creator of Sapphire and Steel has been commissioned to write an episode of this, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if, if there's any, uh, probably a, a bit of an homage to Sapphire and Steel, uh, but then again, I could be wrong on that, too. Possibly. You, know, I again, don't... It, it's, you were saying that Torchwood really needs to stand on, you know, with its own identity, and yeah. again, it's, you know, with a brand new show, it's very difficult to have your own identity right out of the gate, mm-hmm. and, and there will be, you know, there is a, a learning curve. But at the same time, like I said, it, it's neither dark like the X-Files or safe like Doctor Who. It, it, it yeah. hasn't really found its grounding yet. Clearly, it's, it is a lot darker than Doctor Who, but it's not, it's not so dark that in the way but, that the X-Files James, dark is dark. But James, just because they have lesbian sex in it? That doesn't to mean doesn't no, make no, it no, all no, of a no, sudden no, adult. No. Well, now that you've opened up that can of worms, but go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> No, I, I mean to say it's dark in terms of its mood. Doctor Who is a bit ridiculous and is a bit fun and a bit tongue-in-cheek, whereas this, I don't think it wants to be, but it is, if you know what I mean. It's kind of... It's trying to be dark, but it isn't. Right. Because, um, you know, there's there's many points in in the show where there's a lot echoed in Doctor Who, and as you say, the, the monsters... They do feel a bit safe. They do feel a bit ridiculous, you know. Um, so the opposite of that would be for the monsters to be genuinely threatening. BBC Three threatening, and yes. they're not. They're not. No, the weevil was the closest thing I think that we've seen. And but even then, the scene in the corridor where she first, uh, you know, uh, meets this thing. You don't feel scared when this thing takes a chunk out of that guy's neck. You start laughing because it's funny. Yeah, because um, um, weevils wobble, but they don't fall down. Yeah, but okay. But wh- where did he come from? What's he doing there? What's, Correct. what's the background Precisely. On this? What's the point of it? You know, um, it just seemed like a whole. It just seemed a way to introduce Torchwood without any real um, mechanism Serious behind it. Like, yeah. uh, I, there were lots of things in it that I did like. I did like the fact that there were ties to Doctor Who that perhaps any Doctor Who fans would get. Like, for instance, the whole perception filter thing, where they, you know, she's like, well, what's all that about? How does that work? And Jack explains that, you know, maybe it was a chameleon circuit that landed there and added its perception uh, filter abilities to the area, which, of course, you know the TARDIS landed there from Boomtown. Uh, mm-hmm. On that very spot, yeah. and you know the the whole hand thing, which is most obviously okay. Major spoiler alert here, but it's most obviously the tenth Doctor's hand, which got severed in the Christmas invasion. Things like that, um, which were just a nice tie-in. Um, but I think there are certain areas. The whole reason I think why it's not believable and isn't as dark as it wants to be. At the, t- uh, the time being, is that it goes over the top on certain things, which it really shouldn't do. Um, and you, that's why I think you can't believe it, and that's why I don't think it's as dark as, as you would like it to be, uh, in the general sense. Well, I, I, w- I would like to comment about at least uh, the, the matter of, of the gay issue here. I, um, I, I don't think that it's... I'm glad that it's not being brought up in terms of a way to bring people in. We, we already know the, the established sexuality of the character of Jack Harkness, 
And as far as I'm concerned, as long as he does the job, he can wear whatever face he likes. Um, I've just, I just, I just hope that nobody takes uh, this little situation here and 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 more or less turns it inside out. As far as I'm concerned, they're not gay characters. They're characters who just happen to be gay. But but yes, obviously, this is another hallmark of Russell Davies exploring bisexuality, homosexuality, pansexuality through these characters, who are not being so overtly. I yeah, well, there's, there's, there's no one, I mean, at least in the two episodes that's been shown so far, revealed themselves to be gay or um, we know, um, we know Captain Jack, we know that, that he's, um, I don't, I, I, he's bisexual, even though I think he would probably use the term, you know, a, a better term would probably be pansexual or omnisexual. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, as far as the other characters go, um, as far as I can, I can discern that they're, they're all straight, you know, um, what Ken had mentioned earlier was, uh, an alien that has that had pheromones that took over Gwen's um, um, desires, or you know, it, it, it kind of overwhelmed her. Snogging it, yeah, but... I mean, it, it wasn't a lesbian thing. No, but I, I, mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going purely for shock value by saying that. But the point is, in the story, just because two women kiss does not make it automatically an adult show. It makes it exciting, though. But again, was was that pandering to the to the sci-fi uh, the the fanboy uh, audience yeah. For, yeah. simply for the sake of putting it in mm. instead of genuinely making it dark or genuinely making it adult? Mm. Just putting that in does not make it. You know, it, it, it uh, uh, to me it, it it harkens back to the things that I despise about Independence Day. Put a Jewish character, a gay character, a black character, a white character. You know. It, just put him in for the sake of putting him in. No. Yeah, well, let's not go to Independence Day. <laughs> but but it's, it's the same thing. You put it in for the sake of putting it in. Yeah, that's yeah you my, don't that's put it in problem. for a reason. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I still want to give the series more time. It's only been two episodes. And yes, exactly. We're being, we're being quite harsh on it, I guess. We've not let it evolve and see how it pans out because I'm excited about it still and I, I am enjoying it, but... I, but I'm it holding it. Easy. Yeah, I'm it's holding very it to a high easy. standard. That's all. That's all I want yeah. to yeah, be. Well, I, Set hmm. the bar high. Because I, I was the first one to say a year ago that the minute they started spinning off Doctor Who, we were going to get the same watered down effect that yes, we got with Star yes. Trek and Stargate yeah. and all these yeah. other things. Yeah. And it's t- and and you know what? Make one thing good. Don't make four things lousy. Yeah, and that's yeah. the thing. That's the thing too. And that's what concerns me about um, uh, about the about Sarah Jane investigates. I I hope that I hope it wasn't be, well. I'm, I'm wrong about this because I was saying oh, I hope it wasn't being brought back be, because uh, because it was just another way for BBC to continue uh, to to expand their base on Doctor Who. But but yeah, unfortunately, it is the case. I mean, granted, it's great to see Liz Slade getting a regular job, and if this pilot goes to series, which we know it will. But, but also factor it out. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to myself. It's the son of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And and the, the the problem becomes um, it gets handed off. It gets set up by Russell T Davies, and it gets handed off to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, once again, is it a, is it a situation where it's watered down? Do they? Uh, I, I adore elizabeth sladen as much mm. as anybody does as much as any doctor who fan does oh she she can still rock a leather mini like you wouldn't believe by the way. And, and she and her character <laughs> rocks but is it gonna hold up on a weekly basis where's the series gonna go 
Okay, Torchwood was promised to be dark. Obviously, Sarah Jane Smith can't be that. Uh, you know, it's going to be. Pro- it will probably be more family oriented. But um, okay, maybe she has canine in the series. Then, do we need a canine animated series on top of that? Actually, well, he's point, actually he's going to make it get to be overkill. Yeah, well, he's going to make an appearance in the first episode. Uh, just wish her well, as do we all. Uh, but, but K9 has his own series on that. I understand yeah. after the pilot, there his won't be His batteries are going to run down or whatever. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. And, of course, if she needs, a, she needs to have the things re, uh, have it recharged, she can always run down to Wales for, for Torchwood. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah. K9 will be back in the boot of the car again. Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, you know, I, I really do hope that... that um, that they don't spend the first uh, the first series last 26 years. I hope that the next 26 years aren't spent in the next four years, to a point where it took 26 years for Britain to get tired of Doctor Who. I just hope and pray to God that it doesn't happen in in a third or a quarter of the time yeah. necessary for her. And of course, Burnout we, we all know how. Out. We all know how our tastes are right now, and we all know how limited our, our intelligence spans are right now. And and everybody loves a winner, but if that thing is uh, that thing starts losing, then people are going to walk away and go on to the next big thing. And uh, it it will be a terrible, sad shame if, if Doctor Who happens to end its run after uh, five years, from 2005 to 2010, and and all the other uh, spin-off series are exhausted and people are just tired of it. I hope it's not the case because Doctor Who deserves a place in British popular culture, along with Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes. Biggles, uh, you know, Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. it, um, Star Trek was another example of here is a television icon, and somehow they managed to saturate the market so bad that people like myself who are Star Trek fans just mm-hmm. simply got tired of it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I would like to think that Russell Davies knows what he's doing. I would also like to think that uh, the people involved, the higher ups at, at the BBC, also know what they're doing in the respects that they have uh, they're continuing this legend they're creating original stories they're doing a magnificent job bringing original aliens bringing back some some old faces um but uh, but still for the marketing value yes but i hope they don't they don't uh, they, they don't uh, water this yeah well yeah, saturate me, and water down yeah. yeah for me the 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 biggest indication as to whether doctor who has a future will be episode one of series three and when the new companion comes aboard, is it, an, is it Rose all over again? Is, it, is the episode Rose? Do we see it from the outside? And we have to be introduced to her and a boyfriend and a mother? Well, we already know there's going to be a cast of characters of her family. They've already been cast with these actors to play her family. And we already know we're going to be stuck on Earth again. And also, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting regardless. And... Um... You know, I think we're just going to have to to see how things pan out, and that's certainly true. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I really hope that I don't come across as being negative about this, and I know I will. But I'm just no. Concerned. It's just that you're concerned, exactly. I mean, because I'm seeing I'm seeing a pattern now with the pilot of Torchwood. I'm, I'm yeah, and that's the one thing that you don't want is you don't want a pattern, but at the same time, you don't want them to just do really silly things and, and be overly controversial for, for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of sums up our concerns about Torchwood in that it is a gr- it is a good show, but it's not a great show. You don't watch it and think, whoa, this is just... Groundbreaking television. Yeah. You, I mean, 
what it is it, is it's a spin-off of Doctor Who. And at yeah. no point did you ever get past the fact that it's simply a spin-off of Doctor Who. No, and I think that maybe after we've had time to watch the series and it's permeated through everything and what I'm going to be interested really in in learning about and, and, and watching will be this whole mystery into Captain Jack's past. He's lost two years of his life. That's what I want to see Torchwood being about. And even now in, in, in the, the series, like Eve, um, Eve Miles, Gwen, the character of Gwen, mm -hmm. keeps asking Jack, where are you from? You know, who are you? All of this. That's what we want to know. Is That's what we want to know. Well, where's he's lost two years of his life? How... Why and even how did he get back to you know the twenty first well, century? Well, yeah, his um, character is pretty much the surrogate doctor in this story. Yes, in this series, yeah, it, you know. it, but yes. as Ken rightly said, if there wasn't that, if you hadn't met the character before, then for me there would be no interest. And I think that's that's its both its um, defining attribute, it, it, its shining glory, and also its downfall at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because if it Captain Jack wasn't in it. Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't watch it. But because Captain Jack's in it, you're constantly reminded of Doctor Who and the fact yeah. that it is a Doctor Who spin-off. Yeah. Um, so that it's, it's, it's quite ironic that it's, it's, uh, its great points and its bad points for me are almost identical. Yeah. Well, yeah. to kind of conclude our discussion here, I just uh, a bit of news is that um, the, the ratings for both episodes were, were very good. On um, the first one had uh, 2.4 million viewers, 12.7% uh, audience share, and the second one had 2.3 million uh, viewers, which was uh, a 13.8% share. So yeah. it, it did very well as far as the ratings go. So, um, yeah, for digital television, it's done very, very well, yes. undoubtedly. Not, I mean, obviously, it's nowhere near in. The, the ratings of Doctor Who land, but still, it's very, very good for digital telly, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that once they start repeating it on the BBC, and and, and I, I'm sure that eventually they will just have an entire transition over to the BBC, to BBC One or BBC Two, that the viewing figures are going to go up. That's never been a doubt in my mind. I, you know, um, I just think that uh, today perhaps people are a little bit too concerned with, with ratings. And, of course, you know, there's been so much hype about Torchwood for the past uh, few months, well, for the, for the whole year, well, really, and, and certainly thus, in the past few months. And that has to attribute to the ratings. You know, it was mentioned in almost every episode of, of um, you know, the, the, last, the last series of Doctor Who. Um, yeah, obviously, and it's been on TV, loads of teasers. and The, the, the finale yeah. featured uh, Torchwood, even though it was albeit a different Torchwood. And, um, you know, so obviously it was that connection to Doctor Who that really, you know, drove the audiences to check it out and, and curiosity. But we'll see how the series goes. Yeah. It's, we've got time enough yet. We've got another, what, 11 episodes to go yeah. or something mm -hmm. like that? Absolutely. So, well, we're, we're one week away from that Cyberwoman episode, and that's, uh, that's tempting. That's tempting. I'd yeah, like to see... that's true. I'd like to see what they do uh, in regards to how well how how close they get um, parallel to the Seven of Nine thing, because God knows Star Trek is uh, Star Trek in its later years ripped off too much from Doctor Who, but that's another story for another time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once.
are quite mad. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. Well, um, our next piece that we want to go into, and this is really uh, just by coincidence that we have Joey, uh, Joey Reynolds from uh, um, American Who. and He's here? Yes. <laughs> oh, that son of a gun owes me money. Because <laughs> we, we were planning on this even before we knew that, that, that Joey was going to be on our show and, and grace us with his presence. But um, we, what we want to do was um, way back when uh, we... we went into our vault, our archives, and we dug out old interviews that we'd done um, from the past. And uh, you may recall that um, the last time we did that was um, was an interview I did with Sylvester McCoy. And we're doing it once again in this episode where uh, we were a guest on a, an, on a different science fiction radio series called Destinies. And this was mm-hmm. um, WUSB. Um, 90.1 at a, FM out of SUNY Stony Brook. Yes. I remember that. I remember that show. I didn't listen. To, I haven't listened to it, or I didn't listen to the archives. But I remember the show in name only. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually it's been running for nearly twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but, it's still on the air. I, I apologize. I stand corrected. The host is Howard McGolan, and uh, I'm sorry, Doctor Howard McGolan. He's the host of the show, and this is going back to um, to April 18th, 1986. So twenty years into our past, and we, um, we were privileged enough to be on the program with none other, John Pertwee. So uh, this is um, also on the show was icon organizer at that time, Ralph Schiano, and uh, representing the Gallifreyan Embassy was our former chancellor, and he went by the name of the Anti-Doctor. And those, <laughs> those of you listening who have a rich history will remember who the Anti-Doctor was, and um, probably remember his real name as well. So, uh, um, holding true, and, true. And just as a minor note, Lewis and I were in attendance, but being young whippersnappers, were a bit quiet and shy around John Pertwee. Uh, well, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. So we, was the, we so still was the... be shy around John Pertwee. <laughs> I mean, Dan Harris. Dan Harris knew the guy. I think from 1981 all the way till his passing, and he's and he's still more or less acts like a, I wouldn't say act like a child, but Dan can tell you stories about Pert, well, as he called him. I think there was one time, and Dan can further embellish this, uh, where Dan went to the uh, 20th anniversary celebration uh, in, uh, I think, what's that? Longleat. Longleat. Mm-hmm. And he, he was outside, and I think people were being turned away at the door. They were, like, in queue for hours. And, and, and still, they were being turned away. And, and Dan was in line, and, and Pert was, like, walking uh, up, you know, being accompanied by security. And, and, and John had saw Dan, and he just shouted, like, across this crowd, Boy, he came all the way across the pond just to be uh, shut out. Come in with me. And and Dan went in with John. Uh, Dan and his friend, you know, who also flew in with him, went in as, as John's guest to the to the event. That's 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 a John Pertwee story. But yes, that goes to show yeah. you that 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 Pert was larger than life. Oh, absolutely. And he, didn't, and, yes. and he never forgot where he came from. Never yes. forgot where he came from. And this planet needs more people like John Pertwee. I'll sit down now. No, no, I, I happen to agree with you 100. percent I, I um, you know, I. I I, I want to speak. Well, I can speak for Ken. Well, he's here. I don't have to speak for Ken. But, <laughs> but speaking, <laughs> I mean, having met John Pertwee and and um, you know spent a little time with him, you know, I was fortunate enough to do that. That I mean, he, and and seeing him at these conventions, um, especially some of these Doctor Who only these uh, conventions, like at King of Prussia with other guests, and how he mm-hmm. would interact with um, with Patrick Troughton and and Colin Baker. It's it, I mean it. We spoke about this early. I don't know if we were recording at the time. How it was very much a family, and 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 he illustrated it like no other. 
and he really had uh, this sense of warmth, and and he was so outgoing and um, and, and larger than life, and yeah. but as you said, still grounded in reality as well. You know, yeah. he wasn't pretentious. He was really, um, I mean, a great person to see at a convention. So, you know, and and that's that. This is one of the reasons we were talking about earlier about you know keeping. The, these archives, no sense keeping them in the dust. We need to, you know, let them out. And we want to thank Howard McGarland of uh, Destiny's for uh, giving us permission to um, rebroadcast this interview that we recorded uh, 20 mm. years ago. And, and as I was saying before, we had the opportunity to interview a lot of people. And I, I know I was doing a lot of interviews at the time. And it wasn't really, you know, we tried to kind of share that, 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 that role among other members of the organization. So at the time, we had the anti-doctor doing this interview, and, um, you know, maybe sometime, if Ken allows me, we'll, um, <laughs> we'll have one of his interviews with, um, oh, my God, his name just escaped me, from Blake Paul 7. Darrow. Paul Darrow, thank you. Oh, please ah, don't. <laughs> Paul Darrow, yes. Yeah, I, I, what a voice. What a voice on that guy. And I'll tell you one thing about Paul Darrow. He's he's probably a graduate from the John Pertwee School of uh, of uh, of whatever John did, um, because at Gallifrey one a couple of years back, uh, whenever he went out for a smoke, he wouldn't go to the back. He wouldn't go into a private room and where he'd relax. He'd go out. He'd go out in the area where you know the front door, you know, of the hotel where you know where people were driving their cars and unloading things, and and he was out having a smoke with with the, with the person that was with him, his uh, his parents' agent, and the fans would come up and talk with him, and and Paul would talk with them. And he'd had conversations, and mind you, the temperature outside—it was—it was—it was it an was was unusual cold snap for SoCal in February. It was freezing, but he was out there. He talked with the fans, and um, and he was very, very personable. And that's something that you do not see in actors on either side of the pond today. You just don't. You just and don't. by the way, Paul Darrow has a hell of an Elvis impersonation. If you oh, you know it. <laughs> you know it. You know it, brother. You know it. You know it. Alrighty, well, um, here it is to, for your listening pleasure. John Pertwee, alongside of um, Howard McGolan, uh, Ralph Sciano, and representing the Gallifrey Embassy, the Anti Doctor. We're here speaking with John Pertwee. Beautifully pronounced. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and joining me is Ralph Sciano, the chairman of Icon 5 and the chancellor of the Gallifrey Embassy. Thank you. <laughs> Known only as the Anti-Doctor. Okay, John, why don't we start with some of your early experiences in radio, since you've done so much radio drama. Yeah, why don't we? Yeah, okay. that's a good idea. Now, in my first experience in radio, yes, was when I was stopped in a street by a friend of mine, a very famous actor called John Salew, and he said, you can speak West Country dialect, can't you? And I said, yes. He said, well, go along to the Bond Street studio and say, I can't make it, I'm filming. So I rushed along and I said, John Salou can't make it, he's filming. And they went raving mad. And they said, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I can speak West Country. And they said, they couldn't care less whether I could speak West Country or not. And I was to get the hell out of it. And I said, well, give us a chance. I said, I can speak West Country and uh, it's perfect, very easy for me. And they said, that's good, go in the studio. So I went in and they said, you got the job. When I went back, I rang my agent and I said, I've got good news, I got that job. He said, I know, he said, you got me into dead trouble. He said, I'm in terrible trouble, I am. I said, why? He said, John Salou's gone raving mad. I said, don't tell me you represent him as well. He said, yes, I do. And I don't know what I'm going to do now. He said, he's all over my back. He said, I said, why, what are you getting so upset about? He said, well, they fired him and you've got all his jobs. 
And so from that moment on, <laughs> I did about 25 programs a week. Young Widow Jones, Mr. Reader, Stella Dallas, Marmaduke Brown, all these things were on early Radio Luxembourg, which was our first commercial station in England. Oh, that wasn't in England, it was in Luxembourg, but it used to cover England. And I was working then and was enormously well paid. I was paid two pounds per program, which is the equivalent of about nine dollars then. <laughs> and I thought it was tremendous. And of course, we did 50 programs a week. And so I was in big, big money. That was big, big money in those days because I'd been paid just prior to that when I was working in repertory companies, which is what you call stock or something, I think, about three pounds, ten shillings a week, which I lived very happily and ran a motorcycle and a girlfriend. So you can imagine that 50 pounds a week was just a millionaire's stuff, man. So that's how I started in radio. Can you tell us about your program, The Navy Lark? Yeah, The Navy Lark was the longest-running radio show in the history of broadcasting anywhere in the world, including the United States. I don't think anybody's ever done a program as long, but it's a comedy program. We ran 20 years. And Ronnie Barker, one of our principal comedians now, which you know, I think, from the two Ronnies, Ronnie Barker was my feed. He was my character man, and as I'd been the character man of a great comedian called Eric Barker when I started on that type of scripted radio show after the war, a show called Waterlogged Spa, which gave me my first break in radio. And... The Navy Lark was a skit, it was a satire on life in the Navy. And as I'd been in the Navy for six years and I'd been at sea, a lot of the experiences that we used in the show were, in fact, real experiences and real things that happened. Like when one day we were bringing the ship, a destroyer, into dock, we made a wrong turn and we went up the Manchester Ship Canal. The result was that when somebody said that they had a cigarette and it was just about to throw it and he didn't know what to do with the cigarette, and somebody said, well, open the porthole and stub it out on the side. He said... The wall's just gone by about three inches from the port side, and this ship of ours, we'd gone up the Manchester Ship Canal and got jammed up it. So <laughs> the stories of the Navy Lark were based on that sort of thing that happened, and it, I say, ran for 20 years, with Leslie Phillips, a comic actor from the Doctor series, which you may have seen, and a great classic actor called Stephen Murray and Dennis Price, and Ronnie Barker and Michael Bates, a lot of very fine character actors. You do any radio today? There isn't any. Oh. Not really. There's none to speak of in England. There are no comedy shows at all. The BBC feel they can't afford it. They can't afford to pay the radio names and the people who know how to handle radio, as we did. I mean, I was on the air 17, 18 times a week, at least, in, in the heyday of radio, before television came into being. And now there's only really one comedy radio show called The, the Hud Lines, run by a, a comedian called Roy Hud. And that, I think, is about the only real big radio show that there is, because the BBC spend most of their money on television. And how did your career in television begin? Well, there was um, a, a character that I played on radio called Commander High Price. He was a Secret Service spy. His catchphrase was, Hush, keep it dark, and talk like that. It was based on my cousin Hugh. My cousin Hugh had a jaw that was locked in a permanent position like this, because somebody hit him very hard on it. And uh, it was permanently fixed. He was a black belt judo and always spoke very confidentially like that. And so I based this character, Commander High Price, on him. And it was very popular, uh, naturally in the war, because the catchphrase, hush, keep it dark, was good because of you know, security. Don't tell anybody anything. We had big posters all around saying, hush, keep it dark, which was very good for me. And... Uh, uh, one day, the, the early days of television, they asked a famous broadcaster called David Jacobs and I uh, to go to the Alexandra Palace, which was where the first studio was, and to uh, do a little series uh, called The Amazing Adventures of Commander High Price. 
It was the worst thing that has ever been perpetrated on television. <laughs> it was diabolical, and it was worked under appalling conditions with batteries of lights, because in those days, you know, you had to put a massive amount of light on the floor. So it was agonizingly hot and uncomfortable and painful. But nevertheless, we did it, and we ran, and we did a series of it. I think we did about 13 programs. Dreadful it was, but everybody saw it, and they all said, saw you on the telly, you know, those that had televisions. Very few people did. Even if you did, you couldn't see him because the screens were so small. <laughs> you know, you needed three pairs of spectacles if you were over the age of 50 to see what was going on. Well done. That was the anti-doctor. <laughs> very good question from the anti-doctor. Right. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes, next. Okay. Now, how would you feel about your son becoming involved with Doctor Who series, maybe even as the Doctor himself? Well, that's a great idea. Marvellous. Sean's a very good actor, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> uh, I, I, I always told him when he wanted to go on the stage, he, I mean, he made this great remark when he was about eight. I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I want to be an impersonator in a submarine. I said, I didn't think it was a great call for <laughs> in submarines, but nevertheless, uh, hooray and go for it. And uh, he, he has, and he passed an audition to get into the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, which is very hard to do. There were 1,420 people went in for the audition for that year, and they only took 12 out of that, and he, he was one of them. Laurence Olivier's daughter failed and didn't get in, so you can see nepotism had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he went there, and he's just finishing his third year, and uh, I'm sorry to have to tell you that he's extremely good. <laughs> uh, I've been to see him in many things, and he's just doing a, a two-handed play now with a black actor, a friend of his who's from Nigeria, who's very, very talented, very good director too, called Hakim El-Hakim, and uh, they're doing a two-handed play, which they've just won an award for down in the West Country, and they're now doing it in in a big Eisteddfod, a big uh, festival in uh, Swansea in Wales. And if they win, which I think they stand a very good chance to do, he will be invited to go to the Edinburgh Festival, which is our best festival of, th of theatre, ballet, dance, music, everything. And if he does that, he'll get his equity card, and then he'll be off my back. <laughs> <laughs> John Peel was telling me that he heard that you and Patrick Troughton offered to sort of alternate and do Doctor Who stories again, sort of come back and do retrospective stories. Is that true? Yes, it is. It's absolutely true. I mean, uh, Pat and I are great mates, and uh, people were asking us a lot of questions about would we ever come back, and I said I didn't want to come back full-time, no, because it's too much like hard work. I'm a very elderly gentleman. I, I like to have a lot of time off and enjoy my skiing, and I have a place in the mountains in the smallest country in the world, a place called Andorra, which is perched in the Pyrenees between Spain and France. I like to go out there and ski. I don't want to mess around playing Doctor Who all the time. But if Pat would like to do it for about three months, and I'd go and do it for three months, and he could do it for three months. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I'm not sure I agree with it now. But I uh, know oh, I like doing the specials. I, I don't want to do, go back and get myself too involved. Well, you're leaving the United States on Monday. You're going back to England. Yeah. But I hear you're leaving for New Zealand very soon. Why don't you tell us what you're going to do down there? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I'm going to the land of the sheep. Yeah, many more sheep than there are people. There are only two million, I think, two million three hundred thousand people in the entire country. I mean, you can't believe that, can you? I mean, what's the population of Long Island? Two million? Oh, well, it's, I, it's I, more than New Zealand. I, I, oh yeah, I reckon it's about five or six million. And I mean, New Zealand's an enormously big country. It's got nobody in it at all. A lot of sheep. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of sheep. And a lot of kiwi fruit. But, a lovely, beautiful country. I've been there often, and I work in Cabaret there a lot, and they come for miles, 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 miles. They drive like you do in America, and we're not used to that in England. But they drive, you know, 250 miles just to come and see you and have a great night out and have a dinner, and then I do, do a Cabaret. And that's where I really get the bit between my teeth and do an hour and a half and, on my own. And we're going out to shoot Wurzel Gummidge out on filming for a New Zealand 
television company that have put the money up to reproduce it. Because when we came off, we came off with millions of viewers a week. We were high, high, high in the ratings. But the company that we were making the series for, Wurzel Gummidge 4, lost its franchise to operate. And they were sort of fired from producing. And ever since then, I've been trying to get a company together to do it. We had one once. We were going to shoot in Ireland on location with the man who makes the Irish RM, which you see here in the States. And that fell through five days before we were due in the studio, which disappointed me naturally very much. But now, hooray, we're going to New Zealand. I'm going on the 11th, and I start shooting on the 16th for three or four months. Well, we have a lot of fans out there that know you from Doctor Who, but why don't you tell us the premise behind Wurzel Gummidge? Yes, indeed. The premise is that he's a scarecrow. He's made by the crow man. The crow man is a god figure. He's the creator. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of morality in Wurzel Gummidge that the children don't see, but of course the adults do, and they think, whoops, wait a minute. That was giving us a bit of a message, wasn't it? And there's a lot of messages in it with a great deal of charm, and he's a wonderful figure. And I call him your eminence in your holiness and everything because, to me, he's the god figure. He's the creator, he's called the creator, because he makes the scarecrows. And he makes various scarecrows, which he hopes one day that I'll marry, but I don't. I'm in love with an Aunt Sally, which is a creature that we have in England in fairgrounds where you throw wooden balls at it, and if you knock it off its perch, you get a coconut. And I'm in love with this horrible woman. She's an absolute bitch she is to me. <laughs> Dreadful. <laughs> Behaves very bad and is beastly to me, but everybody loves her. She's one of the characters on television that people love to hate. And I have two little kids who look after me, and they get into the adventures with me. And it's watched by millions and millions of people, and from, for children, because it was ostensibly for children, being a children's book, and the result is that we have children from the ages of 2 to 82, because if you cover the whole spectrum of age, the, the people who appreciate it. So well, when I go and do personal appearances, you see all the world and his mother turn out to see it. I'll tell you, I went to a convention a couple of years ago, and when I heard it was about a scarecrow, I was really skeptical. But I loved it. I want to see more of them. I've only seen a couple of conventions, and I hope that someone picks it up in the States. Well, they will. Uh, we, we see, we're very anxious. We don't, uh, I'm sure that we could have no problem in selling it to PBS, but unfortunately PBS is not financially very rewarding. I would like to try to sell it to a syndicated station or to a, a proper national hookup station uh, because so that one can get some sort of reasonable reward financially for, for it. Uh, but if we can't, well, then, of course, we'll go for PBS. And, uh, but we want to try to contact the Nickelodeon people. But most people want 50 programs, and we haven't made 50. Uh, well, we haven't when we came off the air, but now, of course, with this new series of 10, then we'll have up near 50, and uh, so it should make it much easier to sell. But we, ha we are continually being told, of course, that Americans find great difficulty in comprehending English, <laughs> uh, and they're, they're always worried about that, and that is why you, you very rarely, in fact, if ever, I don't think any British program has ever been networked that I can think of. I mean, certainly, I'm, I was married to a lady called Jean Marsh, as my ex-wife, who plays in Upstairs, Downstairs. Do you remember the series? Yes. She plays Rose. It was her series. She invented it. Uh, and uh, with all the popularity that had, it, it was never networked. It was only on uh, Channel 13 or PBS. And what's the one, that, the, 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 uh, the wonderful series that's recently about the, the, old, the old English home? And it's Laurence Olivier and... and uh, oh, dear me. A big, big classic series. Enormous hit in America last year. Um, oh, well, we're, I can't. I, I we're all rather tired from spending our, our weekend here at Icon, and <laughs> yes. we can't think very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. How did you come to get the role of Wurzel? I came to get the role because Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall, who are two of our most eminent writers and uh, scenarists, playwrights, they wrote uh, shows like Billy, Billy Liar, and uh, The Long and the Short and the Tall, and all these 
uh, these plays, um, and he's a great novelist. They wrote a movie, they wrote a film uh, about the series, uh, and they asked me to play the, the lead in it, to play the scarecrow. Uh, I said I'd love to, because this was the perfect vehicle for this voice that I'd used years ago on radio. They said, oh, Lord, it, what is it matter what you do as long as you tear them up? He said <laughs> he was a postman in, the, in one of these radio shows. And so uh, I said, yes, I'd love to do it. But they couldn't get the money together, and they couldn't get the distribution they required. And so uh, they then said, well, uh, we better forget the whole thing. I said, no, don't do that. Write me a pilot, and I'll see if I can sell it to television. So I offered it to the BBC, and they turned it down flat, which was very silly. <laughs> and then I offered it to Thames Television that I've been working for on a series called Who Done It, and they turned it down as well. And uh, so I began to lose confidence in it a bit, and then Southern Television came along, which was the local television station from the south, a very big production company. And they bought it, and within four weeks of showing, we'd become a cult. And the whole, the whole nation took it to their hearts. So that's how that came about. And how many years have you been playing it? Uh, well, uh, we haven't been on the air for, how long is it, three, three years? Yes, three years. We, we, we have, we've been off the air, uh, but it ran for four years. Four years first. Anti-Doctor, <laughs> champing yeah. at the bit. <laughs> well... Many people who have come to your conventions have heard you tell many of your stories. I was wondering if you could share your story about the compass that you had taken from the ship. Oh, well, yeah, very, very, very briefly. I used to do, collect souvenirs for Sean's museum and um, um, collected all sorts of things and bits and pieces uh, that, that the prop men said I could take. And uh, we were on a ship in, in uh, what was the name of the series that, with, with the drashings? Carnival of Monsters, and we were using an old ship that was going to a breaker's yard, and I asked whether we could take anything off it, and they said, yes, you could take what you like, except the ship's compass, because the captain wanted the ship's compass, which was in a binnacle in the middle of a bridge. So I went up to the bridge, I didn't touch the ship's compass, but I looked in a little locker at the back, having been in the Navy, because I knew where they kept spare compasses, and there, sure enough, was a beautiful brass, very early compass sitting in, it, in its case in this little, little box. So I took it and put it in my bag, and almost had a hernia trying to carry it back to the boat we were leaving. And Barry Letts, the producer, was just about to cast off. And when, when somebody rushed up and said, whispered in his ear, and, and Barry said, I don't believe it. And he said, uh, come on now, boys and girls, play fair. We said uh, that uh, you were to take anything you liked off the boat, but not the ship's compass. Who's got the ship's compass? And he looked at me immediately, because he, <laughs> he knew that I was inclined to, you know, collect a few rabbits. And, and, uh, and so I gave him a little high sign that, yes, I'd got the ship's compass. And so I, I said, I thought I knew, I thought I'd seen it put somewhere. And I... Of course, it wasn't that at all. I had, the, had it in my bag, and I rushed back, and I put it back in the box. And I went back again, and five minutes later, a fellow came rushing up to Barry again. And went, and Barry said, I don't believe it. And he said, now, come on, lads. I mean, who's got the ship's compass looking at me again? I mean, nodding his head. And I said, it's, and I made sort of noises and faces at him, and, uh, and he eventually came over to me, and I said, it's gone. I put it back. And... We found to our horror that somebody had actually stolen the real ship's compass. They'd stolen out of the binnacle. And I, it wasn't me. And I, of course, like a fool, had given my compass back, and nobody even knew that one was missing. So I, I, I missed the opportunity of getting this beautiful compass. And years later, when I was doing a show with my, with my stand-in, Terry Walsh, and I told this story, and he was sitting alongside of me, and he, he, he leant over and he said... It looks lovely at home on the night. He gave me the biggest shock in my life because he'd never told me that he'd got it, and it was he who'd nicked it after all. <laughs> We're wondering, like, are you as curious about your fans who are involved in Doctor Who as they are about you in your life? No, 
<laughs> no, I'm, I'm here on a PR job, and uh, no, I think people want to know uh, what I am interested in when I appear at conferences like this one, uh, which I, why I enjoyed it so enormously, because it seemed to be run by a lot of people who seemed to be enjoying it, and there wasn't this sort of heavy-handed security where people go around in hard hats and truncheons, and this attitude, which I don't like, and it's all been frankly smooth. And, and I like, too, the fact that in this conference... Uh, people ask questions that have nothing whatsoever to do with Doctor Who. That's why I like being with Jimmy Doohan, because they were, they were talking about Star Trek and attitudes and our attitudes towards work and, you know, our life in the theatre and so on. That's what I like. I like to talk about all very, very wide things. I, I Just pure Doctor Who purists, I, I find inclined to get a bit boring, because they ask the same questions over and over again. How did you come to be a cabaret performer? Well, because, uh, as I said, when um, I was a straight actor before the war, I was in, in Shakespeare and, and, and restoration comedy and rep, repertory companies all over the country. And then during the war, I said I started radio and started broadcasting, then went on the music hall. And, of course, when music hall died, which it had to because, of, I mean, it, it had died before the war, of course, in the United States, Rodeville had gone long before. But wartime kept it alive in England because the troops had to go and do something in the evening, so they went to the music hall. But it fizzled out, and I thought, well, the best thing to do is to take my my vaudeville act and to change it into a more sophisticated approach, which it was fairly sophisticated anyway for musical. And uh, I, I adapted it to fit the cabaret, and uh, I then started to tour all over the world doing cabaret, particularly, I say, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and places like that. A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, did not get to see your cabaret act, and in, in fact, probably don't even know what a cabaret act entails. Could no, they don't. Describe? I don't think Americans know what, quite what cabaret Could you is. sort of give a brief description of what a cabaret act is all about? Well, I mean, cabaret, the, the true sense of the word, of course, is it was in Germany. Uh, that's where cabaret really originated in the, in the 20s. And, and entertainment in a nightclub with girls and dancing, and it could be... I mean, in Germany, it was very pretty sordid and weird and kinky. Cabaret in England for years has been a nightclub entertainment where you would have a, a, a line of very pretty girls and then you'd have a, a compare and then you'd maybe have a speciality act like, like in vaudeville. It was sort of high-class vaudeville, really, and then you, the, your star act would either be a comedian or you would be a, a singer, a male or female singer or a group or something. And uh, it was, it's a, a very, very tough medium indeed because in England you are in the main an intrusion. Uh, people haven't come to that club to see you, they've come to that club to take their girlfriend or somebody else's girlfriend or their wife or somebody <laughs> else's wife out for the evening and that they say well, who the hell, who is oh, oh, go off, and they don't really want to know about you, and uh, and the atmosphere is dreadful, except in the sort of top, top venues, but the rest of them were quite awful and now nobody will work with clubs particularly in the north of England because people behave so badly, and, and the Savoy Grill one of the shishiest places in the world in history uh, is now an impossible place to work because a lot of young people go there and they get plastered and they shout and you know, there's no manners left. And, but in uh, abroad, in South Africa or in Australia or New Zealand it, or Kenya, I go there and the, the audiences are absolutely magic and wonderful. And they travel, I say, for miles to go and see you because they want to see specifically you. We had a cabaret last night here at Icon and your performance was most impressive. I think the greatest compliments you got were from Jimmy Doohan, who was sitting next to me. He was marveling at, at every move you made, every expression, the, your timing, everything. He had nothing but compliments for you. Oh, well, that's great. I'm delighted. Uh, he's a great guy, Jimmy. We have a, a lot in common because our sort of background in theater is very much the same. And, of course, Jimmy is a voice man. 
And for years, he was a voiceman on radio. He was telling us today on one of the chats that um, he'd been, to begin with, in the early part of his career, doing all kinds of eccentric voices and characters and dialects. He speaks. He's the best impersonator of an English voice I've ever heard. He's better than Danny Kaye. I mean, he's wonderful, his English. We heard him do this Reggie character. Absolutely marvellous. I mean, it's impeccable. And uh, his, his Irish, his Scots, all his dialects are, are, are tremendously good. Of course, that's exactly what I did. That's how I started to work doing all these eccentric voices. So our work is very much alike and very much the same. How did you like working with the Gunderson Corporation? Oh, great. I mean, when I, the, the, the greatest thing they did was the rehearsal. Normally I go to rehearsal for a, con a conference and I'm there three quarters of an hour and I go away at the end of it in tears because I know that nobody's understood a word I've been talking about. <laughs> they don't know what a spotlight is or a follow spot or they don't know how a clipboard goes on a microphone. And I spoke to the stage manager of the Gunderson Corporation and they knew exactly what I was talking about. And I, I, I think, well, how long the rehearsal take? Five minutes? About five minutes. And I went there and everything worked. I mean, the mic was in the right place, the chair was in the right place. A fella came on and did the, my chair gag bang on. I mean, his timing is supposed to, this is working with pros, of course. And it's, uh, it doesn't half show. It's a lovely idea. And wherever I go, I like to work with them because they're really good. Well, we're planning on having the Gunderson Corporation back next year to run our cabinet. I don't blame you. Very good indeed. No, because they back anybody up well. Anti-Doctor, you have a question? Well, I'd like to know a little bit more about your family, like, you know, your other children. What are they involved in? Oh, right. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I say I was married, first of all, to, to Jean Marsh, and uh, but she had a career ahead of her, and I don't think was too keen on the idea of, of, of having a family uh, at that time, and I was, and so anyway, we, we split up. But we're very good friends. And I then married a German girl called Ingeborg, who's a writer. She's an extraordinary girl. She's German. She only spoke German when I met her. And yet, uh, we'd only been married for eight years, and she wrote a tremendously successful novel in England, in English, which is remarkable. It's just like saying to you, do you speak Italian? You say no, but in eight years' time, you write a highly successful Italian novel. She's a very, a very lady with immense purpose. Uh, she's very shy, and that's why you haven't seen anything of her. She uh, keeps very much to herself. She's perfectly happy. We're living in a beautiful little cottage in, what is it called, the two villages? Three villages. The three villages. <laughs> and, uh, and she's been perfectly happy. Though, unfortunately, the sun went in just as we arrived, but, uh, it's been lovely. Uh, we have a daughter called Dariel, and she's a highly artistic young lady, and she's also a very talented actress, but I didn't want her to go into the theatre because she's too soft, and, uh, it's a very tough business. And, uh, so she went into, first of all, she studied dress design, and she worked at Simpsons, doing a, a course for three years, and learned the trade, but didn't like it, wasn't happy. Then went into the restaurant business, and she didn't like that. And she's now in the interior decorating business, and she's doing this new thing, which is called streaking, which is you people do things with sponges. If you see in this work, you work on the walls with sponges and colors, and, and you convert to things into making them marbleized and mm -hmm. so on. And it's very, very popular in Europe now, and she's becoming an expert at it. And I think and I'll probably set her up in a business, and she'll do very well. And I told you about Sean, so that's, that's all there is to us. The rest of my brother is a writer, of course. And my um, my cousin Bill Burt, who's a well-known uh, comedian and actor, they were all in it. They were all of us. And your father? He... Yes, my father was Roland Burt. We at one time he was uh, better known in America, a lot better known than I was or am. He was a, a novelist. He used to write in the Saturday Evening Post, every publication, and the Collier's magazine. You probably don't remember Collier's, but it was the big-selling magazine, weekly magazine. And my father was a short story writer, and he was a playwright, 
and uh, used to write uh, plays for um, people like Sir Gerald de Maurier, a great English actor, one of the first of the great method actors. And he wrote a lot of his plays, very successful plays. And then he came to Hollywood and he lived in Hollywood for years writing films for people like Leslie Howard and Ronald Coleman. Scriptwriter in that era, working for Warner Brothers. Uh, and my uncle was a poet. He was the head of the Poetry Society in Europe, and he was the, uh, the head of the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, one of our great drama schools. So that's uh, family. Well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. I'd like to thank you as chairman of ICON. You really made our convention this year, and you're a very professional performer, a very impressive performer, and we'd love to have you back sometime. You've only got to ask, Ralph. Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed myself enormously. Thank you. Thank you. And on behalf of Destinies, I'd like to say that you've also made our show for this week. Thank so you. thank you again. Not at all. My pleasure. And thank you, You're Antidote. Fine. Thank you, Mr. Parker. <laughs> about your movie watching? Do you know more about Star Wars than you do about your mother? Is Peter Jackson your favorite hobbit? Do you refuse to acknowledge the existence of any Godzilla movie that stars Ferris Bueller? Well, fear not. Now folks like you have their very own podcast, Cinema Slave. Cinema it's a weekly show dedicated to the passionate discussion of all things film, science fiction, fantasy, horror, foreign film, Hollywood classics, and everything in between. Cinema Slave. Check it out at www.cinemaslave.com or through iTunes. Just search on Cinema Slave, that's one word, and click subscribe. So simple, even a Gungan can do it. Excuse me! Watch! As I split the basic atom note, my fingers barely move enough to see. In fact, I draw the line across the leaf. Believe me, your puzzled faces wonder why. The sleight of hand deceives the eye. Your mystery just for you will have time to amuse your mystery. And we're back with Doctor Who Pachak. And this is our feedback section, and we have a couple of feedbacks that we want to get to. Um, and He's the greatest. He's fantastic. Wherever there is danger, he'll be there. He's the ace. He's amazing. He's the strongest, he's the quickest, he's the best. Wait a minute. What's that? Danger you hear that? <laughs> it's Danger Mouse. Oh, he's terrific. Oh. <laughs> you, you wouldn't happen to have Count Docular in there, would you? <laughs> <laughs> he may be our next audio feedback, but um, the first one is Dan, who goes by the name is, uh, goes by the screen name of Danger Mouse on our forums. And uh, um, Dan sent us this um, piece of audio feedback, and Dan... What what do you want to tell us? I I, I sense some some loving coming from you. <laughs> it's that whole torchwood <laughs> theme going on today. <laughs> Hello, Podshockers. My name's Dan, otherwise known as Danger Mouse on the forums. Although I've not posted there recently, mainly due to the fact that my work firewall 
has barred the site. That's nice of them, but never mind. Um, recently, well, I say recently, I think it was about Podshock 44 or 45, either Ken or James said they'd like to hear from people um, to see where people listen to the podcasts, i.e. on the way to work, for example. I normally listen on my way to work when I'm on the bus. Um, but recently... In fact, five weeks ago, my wife gave birth to our second daughter, Madeline, and she was in hospital for a couple of nights, and it felt lonely being on the house on my own, and so I went to bed with Ken Lewis and James, tucked up nice and warm, listening to Podshock. They're very good bedfellows. You don't hog the duvet, um, you don't snore, you just keep me entertained. And let's face it, it's nice to be entertained in bed. A shout out to Colin as well. Um, I think it was was it Podshock forty five or forty six where Colin uh, was on the show, and it was great to hear from him. He's one of the main contributors, um, and I'd just like to say thanks. I think he you know deserves recognition, and everyone out there that listens to Podshock or posts on the forums really respects him, and enjoys the input that he provides. I'm actually in a hotel room at the moment, again, feeling a bit lonely. Ironically, I'm in Cardiff, where most of the Doctor Who filming goes on. Uh, I'm here with work, and so tonight, once again, I'll be going to bed with Ken, Lewis and James, and I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot for the fantastic podcast. Um, I think you're at about 55, 56 now, at the time of recording this, and I look forward to next year listening to your centenary podcast the big one double o and who knows where it'll go from there hopefully it'll go on and on and on and when i'm in my 80s i hope i'm listening to you then only 26 now <laughs> thanks a lot guys bye wow very cool Yes. So, um, so uh, we, we tuck him in bed, we give him the warm milk and the cookie, and we, we read him a book about Eeyore and Piglet then, right? <laughs> oh, I and have Edward, like that. Yeah, and I, Edward hope, I hope that's what he means by we're good bedfellows. <laughs> oh, well, uh, century. I had a whole different vision in mind. <laughs> But you know, what, I, I really is it really is a great uh, a great piece of feedback. It's nice when you we we actually get a little little peek into the you know somebody's mm-hmm. life and, and how. And, what the show brings to somebody, you know, what, what they take away from the show, and, and that's really that's that's great. That's a lot of fun. Also, yeah, very cool. Also, congratulations on your new daughter. Um, Indeed, yes. fantastic. And also, congratulations to Colin for being the new co-host. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll have Colin on again soon. We have to. I'm sure. Yes. Colin's been Colin, and we're dying to have him on. Yeah, he's um, been very silent through all this. Colin, yeah, he has. Yeah. He's probably just I, sitting I on the sidelines thinking, oh, my God. I hope he doesn't take, like, offense to the fact that we're saying it. Like, you know, uh, you know. It... I'm sure he doesn't. <laughs> I'm sure knowing Colin, he'll probably get a major kick out of it. I'm sure okay. he will. <laughs> Colin, did you put Danger Mouse up to this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love your podcast and all that, but you know that Colin guy? <laughs> He's really good. <laughs> You know what? I'm just so fired. I'm so out of it. <laughs> Everyone would have thought it. Everyone thought Ken was off doing his uh, projects, but it's going to be me. <laughs> we we have one one uh, one final piece of, of feedback. This is um 
um, Ari from um, Boston. If I'm not mistaken, he was a regular uh, contributor to um, um, pod, was it the, the, the Tom Dillahunt's podcast. Is it Podcast Who? Yeah, Podcast Who. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, and I'm, 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 well, he's always welcome to send feedback here as well. So um, this is what Ari had to say. Hey guys, this is Ari from Boston calling um, about the pod shock that was uh, released on October 21st. Uh, I'm, I, I'm calling in kind of uh, a little bit of my impressions on the first two episodes of Torchwood. Um, I loved the first episode. I thought it was really, really good. Uh, the second episode, and uh, you might want to sound the cloister bell because there are going to be some small spoilers here. It felt to me a little bit like something that they were doing just because they could take advantage of being on after the watershed. I mean, you know, let's face it, the Nookie monster, you know, again, they handled the story well, and a bit of what they're doing with Jack's character is very compelling, and I want to see how that goes, but it felt like they sort of tacked on a lot of the aspects of the episode because, hey, look what we can do now, you know, the kids are in bed, let's have the grown-up time. And while, you know, I don't necessarily mind it, I think it would be better if it was a little more subtle. Um, welcome your opinions. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, we all knew that Torchwood was going to be dark, um, but we didn't know that it was going to be dark in, in this kind of way. And I, I'm hoping that it's just that uh, Russell is going to try and get all of the saucy stuff out of the way early on. Because uh, I think that it, 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 in many respects, I think it's, it's a bit of a, a publicity stunt because I think quite a few people just reading from forums and talking to uh, friends and things, you know, it, it was completely different to Doctor Who and it's gotten people talking and thinking and it's injecting interest into the show which is I think what the the BBC wants because they want obviously the audience to grow and to sustain the show so I think that's really why they did it to kind of be a bit naughty and a bit risque in the beginning yeah. and hopefully <laughs> over time things will kind of level off and it won't be as as uh, silly um, in terms of the fact that oh look we can swear and we can Talk about sex because it's after nine o'clock. You know, it's. Uh, I think that's just to kind of attract people well, originally. Going back to how Russell T Davies introduced Doctor, reintroduced Doctor Who again back in two thousand and five. Um, here we are in now in the twenty first century, and Rose kind of established the series, the episode Rose that is, and then now we're at the end of the world, and now we can do all these great special effects. So you know where we couldn't have done them before. So let's like throw everything you know into. The End of the World, which um, probably is one of the most expensive episodes of that series. And, um, you know, so we saw yeah, all it's these a like, great idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you, you, you kind of were inundated with these great special effects shots and all these like aliens, um, you know, done very well. And so it's sort of like, let's get this out of the way and show everyone that, yes, we can do it. And maybe that's what the th thinking was with um, day one, episode two of Torchwood is, um, okay, now that we can do all this stuff that we can't do in Doctor Who. Let's show them what we can do and how far we're going to go. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. We'll see. Makes sense. All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, any other thoughts? Um, gentlemen, we Torchwooded out? Yeah, I think we're yeah. already, we exhausted the Torchwood discussions, I think. 
Pretty much. I must say, gentlemen, it's, it's an honor that you guys have me back, uh, have, your, have me here on the first time on such short notice, and uh, and uh, I, I do want to say thank you for, for having and me on. To, thank you, to thank you for being here. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, and I'm, I'm, I'm most honored to, to come back, if you will. In fact, I think I probably will have to next week, because I got the microphone, and you need Dan Harris, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and obviously I just got to point Dan in the right direction. He'll uh, he'll probably uh, agree with everything I've said. And and uh, but yeah, your your intended guest Dan Harris, I I will do everything possible to bring him in for for next uh, next show. Okay, great. Fantastic. We Cheers, appreciate mate. your help. Yeah. Happy to help. Happy to help. All right. Well, um, take until next week. Uh, cheers and take care, everyone. Yeah. Take it easy. Thanks, everyone. Good night now. been listening to Doctor Who Podshock by the fan-run GallifreyanEmbassy.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Oh, goodbye, my dear chap. I must say I've had the time of my lives.